Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson podcast. Mike here at the top of this week's episode, introducing this week's app, and this is actually a bonus episode, uh, a bonus Friday episode with Declan Fay. If you're unfamiliar with Declan Fay, he is a writer, producer, and director from Australia. He talks in this podcast a lot about um, his sort of journey into comedy and comedy writing, writing on shows like Rove in its early days. And he also talks uh, at length to Will about uh, their shared love of the band Pearl Jam for a while. As well as that, uh, he talks a little bit about his uh, narrative podcast, Crossbred, uh, which is available to listen to now, which is a, uh, a, yeah, a narrative podcast about a Christian rock group who get really big. I think it's uh, really creative and uh, really interesting to hear about as well. Definitely go and check out Declan Fay and all of the fantastic work that he does. This episode was recorded a little while ago now, so we're really glad to be putting it out finally and for you guys to hear this fantastic chat. If you do like Willosophy a lot, head to patreon.com slash Willosophy for as little as a dollar a month. You get the episodes a day early and uh, ad-free as well. So generally uh, on our usual release day of uh, Mondays for Patreons, for Patreon supporters, I will have the episode up generally at about, uh, I think I usually schedule it for 5am on a Sunday. So you can wake up on a Sunday morning and enjoy the episode ad-free before everybody else. Definitely get in touch with us and let us know what you think of the show on Twitter at WillosophyPod. Check out all of the fantastic artwork on Instagram at WillosophyPod on Instagram. And of course, you can also watch Will's show Gruen, which is now back on the ABC on Wednesday night. So definitely watch that if you are at home on a Wednesday night or catch up on iView. That is pretty much it from me. I will now pass it over to this great conversation between Will Anderson and Declan Fay. Enjoy. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. No, yes, yes, yes. Okay, yes, it's recording. Hello. How, how close are we checking this? We've got to, we need I'm a magnifying glass on this one. I'm pretty nervous at the moment yeah. about this. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. This is how the show starts. Who are you? I'm Declan Fay. Hello, Declan <laughs> Fay. This is Declan Fay part two, except it's part one. This is yeah. uh, Declan... Here's the thing. I think even last time we spoke, yeah. we might have spoken yeah. about the idea of losing podcasts. We, I think the exact thing we said, you're not a true podcaster until you've lost like what you think is your best ever episode. And then we <laughs> sent that out to the podcast gods and they reminded they really Look, I need to say first and foremost yeah. that it was my fault. Yep. Your side of the audio is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> my side of the audio is non-existent. See, that's very rare for me because my I saw when we mm. finished, mm. I saw your face on Zoom <laughs> and it's literally like you became skeletal. <laughs> like you didn't even have to say anything. Like something, your whole, everything sunk in. And I just thought, but I, and as a, ex-Catholic schoolboy I just mm. blame myself for every I thought I've stuffed something up I've pressed the wrong button I've done something and it took maybe six or seven emails from you blaming yourself for me to believe that I hadn't stuffed it up <laughs> maybe I should have leaned into your Catholic oh, guilt lean in I should have been like yeah. mate I'm, yeah. I don't know my side that's fine <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the fuck you've done <laughs> but I you had that look it was so much hope and it was like disappointment It the, the thing that I thought of was when Homer's got that pig 
steak that he's cooked for mm-hmm. a barbecue and it's flying through the air and he's going, it's still good. It's still good. Because you're like, no, no, I can fix it. It's just a little yeah. bit of audio. And then you're like, oh, no, I'll just add in some things. I'll send it off to this yeah. guy. And each thing got a little bit more complicated. <laughs> Until the inevitable email, yeah. which I think I started with, you know this email's been coming. Well, I thought about it and I thought, should I just email him and just go, please, it's fine. I don't remember anything from that morning. We can go again. I thought about it and then you luckily, produ- mm. I thought I'd run into you at the festival and just go, it's gone, isn't it? And But it's... it's, it's the, it, well, the it, funny thing is, it's not actually gone. No. Like your recording still exists. <laughs> yeah. In fact, there's two. It was the same issue for both. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, my... A very trusty SD yeah. card that had yeah. recorded thousands of hours yeah, of interviews yeah. over the year decided that it was just going to. Oh, fuck I was out. the one. I was like the housemate that moves in at the end. And you fucks and the Anna really Piper good. Scott. But oh. I still felt like it was. You know what it was like? It was like having a dodgy front door <laughs> that didn't lock properly yeah, all the time. Yeah. And somebody was like, hey, you better be yeah. careful about that front door because one yeah. day, you know, yeah. someone's going to come in and rob your house. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, you can jam it shut. Yeah. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know what it is? It's equivalent to my first car that my dad bought me was a VW Beetle. It was from 1963. He'd got it. My dad worked at that stage couriering artworks for quite strange artists often. And uh, somebody was unable to pay him, so gave him a... Uh, 1963 VW Beetle It was hotted up Had yep. mag wheels on it It was lime green Like for your first car It was actually an awesome car To yeah. have Like I met Girls and people I should never have met Just because I drove that car And they yeah. would ask for a lift home But my your dad Your dad was the original pickup artist That's like the equivalent Of wearing like a feather in your hat At a bar Or nagging somebody Well he had it for himself But my dad was quite uh, By that stage Quite overweight And VW Beetles Are quite mm. small And my memory of when I was About 16 When he first mm. got it he would have his stomach and he would have to kind of wedge it under the big steering wheel and then roll the steering wheel. It would roll him in. And then the... <laughs> what a beautiful image. It was. It was this. It had a big old steering wheel and he'd just roll himself and the, his stomach would be tucked underneath it. And then the, uh, the accelerator pedal broke off and it was just a little stump. Wow. So that you could feel the stump, you had to drive in your socks. So he did the thing that you do with your kid that yep. just gets their license. Is yeah. You go, oh, they're about to do the most dangerous thing they've mm. ever done uh, by driving. I'll give them mm. the most dangerous thing they could possibly do it in. And he did. He gave me the car. And so I, I, I worked to make money to fix it. And then, but he kept saying, you got to keep getting the engine serviced because, no, it wasn't him. Somebody else kept saying, get the engine serviced. Old VWs tend to catch fire or overheat. And, I, you know, as a kid, you go, yeah, 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 I know, I know. Because they don't take water. They've got this air cooling system. Oh. That was the whole thing with VW Beetles. They, like, do this circular air thing. And I remember this friend kept saying, you've got to make sure when you get the engine done, get it cleaned. The engines get really hot, blah, blah, blah. And then one day, coming off the Eastern Freeway, I felt the engine sputter a bit and I revved it and a fucking fireball went out the back of the car. <laughs> Like the car behind me must have had the greatest. Even talking to you about it now, I remember the feeling. This fireball just went, woof, and I pulled into a. I pulled into Wellington Street, and it's where the Fox is now. But the Fox was not the Fox. It's quite hip now. Mm-hmm. This was like the same three dudes drinking in the bar, and my car's on fire out the front with wheels melting. And I ran. I go, my car's on fire, and the guy just goes, "Here's a bucket, mate." Like he didn't. He like. <laughs> 
there's nothing. You've played in bars all your life. There's nothing that's removing those three bar flies from that seat. He gave me a bucket. I filled it up with water, and we were. It was done by that stage. So the, only thing, the only thing that was going to remove those three guys was gentrification, <laughs> and eventually it did its job. It's where are those guys now? Did the fox when they came in and redid it? Did they just build over the top of those guys? Like, is the new bar that's there with kind of like you know ten year old whiskies and and ciders? I like to think with those old bar flies that they yeah. just move them another 15 kilometers out <laughs> you know what i mean like just yeah. move, they come in one night they just yeah. grab them from the bar yeah and they just put them in a new bar that looks pretty much the in, same yeah 15 or 20 kilometers it is, out. they come in yeah. they wait till they've had maybe three yeah. or four it's a black bag over their yeah. head <laughs> slip them all into yeah. a car and then it's a bar maybe in preston yeah. we might even be pushing oh, reza preston, yeah i was gonna say preston further? might be too you might have to it would have been preston it would have yeah but they've just been moved out of there as well so or yeah. even Epping, yeah. Campbellfield. <laughs> and there's a bar where they just keep dumping these old dudes who don't know. Like, they literally don't know. It looks pretty similar to what they were in. They're, yeah. Uh, that is something. Did you? Are you a, a person who's ever had a, a regular pub? It's funny, so funny. When I first started, mm. um, you know, being an adult, yeah. there was something very <laughs> yeah. appealing about the idea yeah, of having yeah. your own local bar. It felt yeah. very grown up and yeah. like there was a real point of pride of like yeah. this is my pub if, yeah. if you're, if you're going to meet me yeah this is yeah this is in fact the, the my pub used to be yeah. and it again has been gentrified yeah. so it's one of those ones that occasionally yeah. when I'm wandering by it I, t- yeah. I tend to just pop my head in to yeah. remember the old days it's also the only pub where I ever did an official bar shift oh wow and, yeah. and it is the Builder's Arms on Gertrude Street oh. in Fitzroy but that's a great first pub to have that was where they shot good guys bad guys Um, it was they did one of the really early kind of like drag shows at the Builder's Arms that's right they used to have Um, the I think Thursday night was the gay night at the Builder's Arms that's right there was comedy nights there like that okay that's a cool first bar yeah they used to on Melbourne Cup Day or one of the racing days it was I can't remember what it was but if you're a regular drinker there and Adam Richard and I both did it uh, if you're a regular drinker there their staff got to go to the races one day oh wow and so they got regular drinkers to man the bar because all the staff would come back and then drink at the pub that after is, the races that and is, the regular it's drinkers it's like a role swap it's yeah. like an 80s movie where you got to swap with the that is like you've got to file that under awesome ideas that are yeah. surely illegal <laughs> now and probably weren't even legal then <laughs> <laughs> and I must say that it was very liberal sort of, they were very much for one drink for, yeah. you know, one drink for them, one drink for you when yeah. you're working behind the yeah, bar there yeah, at the yeah. builders. My sister yeah. met her husband yeah. uh, for the first time, I believe, out yeah. the back of the builders' arms. There you go. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So my, my first bar was not that. I lived with my parents in Bulleen mm-hmm. and we had a bar. If you've ever come off the Eastern Freeway where Thompson's Road is, you'll see it. it's huge edifice now, but it was called the Sentimental Blow. And it was suburban beer barn, like a pub tab in the front and then just a giant open room that they would then transform into an underage nightclub on weekends, which was called existence oh, that's right oh yeah. my god yeah how did i remember that i mean yeah. how could you forget that existence. who has come up with the name of the nightclub and called it existence, existence. <laughs> like i literally haven't thought of that for about 25 years like there is a generation of people from bullying doncaster mm. whose first 
anything sexual happened somewhere on the carpet somewhere of, existence. In, the, in the shadows of existence it's uh yeah i remember i remember it clearly the logo was like all in it was on white background all in blue existence but a giant x like that went you know so it was all like lowercase with an x for the existence and yeah that was where every kid from like i can't believe i'm talking about this from bulleen and doncaster went there'd be cues but it was the oddest thing because it was one of those bars during the week that was three bar flies mm-hmm. and then i don't know maybe they again maybe they shipped them out to you know a nearby suburb and for this one night there'd be kids and this is early 90s so it was politics jeans those big baggy oh, ones yeah. <laughs> There'd be like you've bought like your starter jacket, so that like like kids in clothes that were nine you know sizes too big for them. These all tiny kids. I remember my mum would drop me there, and uh, she'd see them, and it was all kids with remember undercuts. You'd shave the side and yeah. then put it in a. And I remember mum going, "Look at them! They they all look like juvenile delinquents." And she'd, <laughs> She'd wait in the like wait in the car park. I, I like, kept trying to get her to drop me. I'd yeah. go, no, you're not allowed to park near here. It's no. got to be like further. Not back. allowed to park in a one kilometer radius. Yeah, that's existence. right. It's, it's the rules. It's the <laughs> existence has its own council bylaws, and you break. That's the one thing my mum hated worse than uh, her kid going to an underage mm. nightclub was breaking any rule, rule. as a Catholic mum. So yeah, you are not allowed within it. We got to walk from ten kilometers away. Actually, drop me on the Eastern Freeway. In fact, yeah. drive in the opposite direction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. of the house and I'll take it from there. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, existence. That was, yeah. Okay, so uh, we have done this before, but yeah. luckily we did it long enough ago that both of us have kind of forgotten what we talked about I in have, the first I, place. I literally, I, I've found the lockdown last year has... And I, I've just had school holidays with mm-hmm. two kids and I have got a bit of a... I'm not being flippant about PTSD because I, I know real PTSD, but there has been this weird flashback to what it was like for six months and literally... My, I, I do have a really good memory. Like I, I remember the first conversation I had with you. We talked about Pearl Jam and how they had a hundred live albums. Remember they were putting a yeah, live album out. I yeah. do remember. Um, you were. I, I loved that you were one of the only people that I knew that knew that they were releasing these albums. Well, um, that was also because I went through a, a solid three years where yeah. I was basing my entire look on Eddie Vedder. So <laughs> I'd, I'd gone in pretty deep on well, that whole look, thing. It's still. That's better that you base it on Eddie Vedder than on Jeff Ament. Yeah. <laughs> Who the the top hats and the fucking like like uh, kind of board shorts with Doc Martin boots? I the best description I've heard. Mm. It's not me. It's a writer who I really like called Tom Brehan said that he was writing about Hunger Strike, which was the crossover between Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. And his description of Jeff Ament said Jeff Ament is jumping around in the background, dressed like a arcade game version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> end of level boss. I was like, that's it. You got it. I've been trying to find a description for like 30 years of Jeff Amen and that is it. I, it's so funny. I did a little Pearl Jam deep dive the other night because yeah. uh, I, as you know, you're in yeah. this big empty house that I'm currently yes. in. There's, there's no TV. We've yeah. tried to find the most soundproof room that there's we There's actually find. nothing. There is genuinely, it looks like the kind of house that it's been robbed like mm. really well. Yeah. Really well yeah. robbed. Yeah. They only left the bed and the podcasting yeah, equipment. That's right. Yeah. They're like, this stuff's useless. We did only 
with this. <laughs> we don't need yeah. to lose money. Yeah, <laughs> We're here to make some money. Yeah, we don't need to lose like just yeah. like forty dollars every, yeah, every week consecutively for ten years. Yeah. So um, I was just on the computer the other yeah. night, and you know, like it's late at night. You know, yeah. going to invest in a series, but so I'm yeah. just like flicking around YouTube. Yeah. And uh, I, I went on a bit of a, a Pearl Jam deep yeah. dive. Started with some like live Pearl Jam. I yeah. wanted to hear how Eddie Vedder's voice was yeah. these days see yeah. if it was still good still good still very very yeah. good I found some pretty recent concert footage you're just before lockdown really mm. like a couple because they pretty much get out on the road pretty constantly so yeah. you can find you know, yeah, what do they do if they're not what have they done that, that band has been on the road for mm. 30 years what do they do when there's a lockdown I mean I think they more than anybody else <laughs> must like go what are we doing they would they have been just, at the front of the queue for the vaccine who like, are all these other people who live in my house <laughs> Do not like it one the, bit. There was a song that came up on Spotify. Mm. The, the one of their their single last year was like a disco song. Did you? Mm-hmm. It's got like a bass. Like, I really liked it. It's like nothing that they've ever sounded like before. It's called Dance of the Somethings. So I got in because I was trying. Uh, you know what it was? They started replaying the other day mm. um, the Unplugged. Yeah, you know, like they've been playing the Unplugged. And so, if you watched Rage growing up, mm. if Rage didn't have a guest presenter. They had two things they'd go to. It was either Pearl Jam Unplugged on MTV or this random Green Day concert right. that was Green Day <laughs> in like a theatre that they should never have been allowed in. But I, I think about that that concert where he – and I didn't know, like I was 14. I remember I taped it. I had it on VHS. Yep. And when he gets to the end and he's doing – is it Porch or – and at the end, he go he does that kind of Vedder oh, yeah. going yeah, crazy sure. thing, and he's shaking his head, and mm. you think he's having a fit, and then he like rips his shirt off and pulls out a texter and writes pro life yeah. on his arm. Now, as a fourteen year old, I didn't know that that meant anti abortion, mm. yeah. and I was like, yeah, Vedder's pro life. Yeah. He it's wants good. us to live. Isn't it good that we're all pro life. <laughs> I really didn't know. Like I was at the, I was nearly going to write pro life on my arm. That's how committed to it I, I was. I mean, well, words change because yeah. I. I now live near Mullumbimby in New South Wales yeah. and they're all very pro-choice, which means technically <laughs> anti-vaccine. Of course. <laughs> of course. That's really funny. My body, my choice yeah. is their big... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, it's hard for me to argue when you put it like that. Yeah, yeah. But are you actually saying that you're anti-vaccines? Because yeah. that yeah. is a different thing. Totally. That's what in the lockdown in Preston, there's mm. like... There's a few of the far left. We, we live in Preston, and I, I'm I'm quite left. But you would yeah. see like, it, you'd go to the park to play with your kids, and then I was telling this mum, and her kid was a bit older but awesome to our kids, and he was playing Pokemon's with them, and he was really great. And so you instantly like him and his mum, and we start talking. And I remember thinking something's wrong here, and then I. As I was talking, she was the only one in the park not wearing a mask and it was kind of defiantly not wearing a mask. And then she then, and she looked very left, but she was like, yeah, I don't know what's going on with Dictator Dan. We're never going to get out of our house. What's he doing? This is just, this, I reckon this is some kind of experiment. And so immediately I'm like, Charlie, get away from that kid. I'm pretty sure he hasn't been vaccinated. Just get away, get away. Well, so this is interesting. Okay, so quickly just to finish yeah. up Pearl Jam because I want to oh, get, yeah, no, I, no, no, because it's, it's nothing really, really that yeah. I wanted to say other than this, which I think you're one of the few people mm. who truly understand. Yeah. You watch that MTV Unplugged, yeah. Yeah. they look like the coolest band oh, in the world, right? Yeah. yeah. 
you watch Pearl Jam perform live now. Yeah. They're still a great band, yeah. but this is purely about looks. Yeah. Eddie Vedder yeah. still looks like a rock and roll front man. Yeah. And he looks like he's invited all his dorkiest uncles <laughs> to come and play music with him. Uh, that the rest of them have just not aged please, well. Is Jeff Amen still not wearing giant top oh, hats? They're all we- I mean, I feel like they've all leaned a bit more Amen's direction. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, really? Like, they the swung rest to of the him. band have just yeah, gone right. a bit more costumey. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, I just want to mm. hang on Pearl Jam for two because yeah. this is remarkable. The other night I went with uh, Chris Ryan, uh, my friend who I've written with. We wrote the podcast Crossbred mm-hmm. together. We went to high school together and we both loved Pearl Jam. And he said to me, did you go to the 1995 Pearl Jam concert at the tennis center? And I said, yeah, I did. And he said, did you know that that is now a live release on Spotify? Oh. And I said, are you joking? And he put it on in the car and it's the concert. And it was amazing how much it begins with release. And I remember Eddie Vedder standing in a fucking crucifix pose oh, yeah. doing his, I see the world. <laughs> and just thinking this is the most amazing thing. And it's it, uh, the sense memory that came back when he played it of being in Rod Laver Arena, what, 30? It's 1995. Mm. And it's everything. They've kept all his dialogue from the show. I remember, but then I remembered a bit after I dropped Chris off, I remembered, I swear this is true. I don't think I've ever said it publicly. So there was me and three friends were in the back row of the bottom section. And then there was a dude sitting next to us who sat down the whole time and he had a beret on. He didn't like cheer. Everyone else was up on their feet from the first song. And then there was three girls and he was this really odd energy between us. And then halfway up, he got halfway through, he just got up and left. Like he must've won a ticket or I don't know, like one, one random ticket. And then the girl next to him just said to me, like, who was that guy? And then I said, oh, I thought he was your friend, like, as a joke. And then she laughed. Oh, no, he was your friend. And, like, you know, as a kid that went to an all-boys school, this is like, it was like being hit by a lightning. Right. But, like, I'm talking to an actual girl. Yeah, now the, d- a- <laughs> yeah the dork's out of the way, and I'm joking with a girl at a Pearl Jam concert. Yeah. Life will never get better yeah, than this. It, it was like <laughs> fucking electricity. Like, I still remember it. And I was like, you don't if you've gone to an all-boys school. Hi, I'm Declan. I'm pro-life. <laughs> Imagine I ripped the shirt off when they get into porch and I did it. But it's, uh, and so, but you don't know what to do. And you like the, it's kind of a mix of panic and exhilaration. I don't think I've ever said this publicly before. It's, uh, so then I, I genuinely didn't know what to do. And then a song came on. Fuck, was it better? It was one of their slower songs. Mm-hmm. And then she goes, I really love this song. And then, Anyway, and then I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I love this song. That Probably my favourite song at the time was Indifference. And I said, mm. I really like Indifference. And then for the encore, they come out and they play Indifference. And in my brain, I went, this is a sign. And so I said to her, I can't believe. It's probably the mm. most audacious thing I've ever done, never done it since. And I said, do you want to hold hands? I'll never forget it. She was, so I'm on this side, she's there. And she just put her hand out like that. I swear to God. <sighs> I've got shivers thinking about this. Honestly, she put her hand out and we held hands. Teenage dreams. And I remember my mate, his name was like Moz and he was like the leader of our gang. He was this little short guy and he'd been in like, he's from a family of nine kids and he kind of, he was in control socially. And uh, I remember him looking going, fuck. He's fucking holding hands. And he's talking to the other, fuck, are you seeing this shit? Like, he was talking to my other friend, Luke. Going, fuck. Like, he was like, I mean, it was wild panic. It's like, the power of Pearl Jam. <laughs> That's what that is. 
and he's going and he's looking at me going what do we do what do we do like he was so <laughs> he was just looking everywhere and then we literally held hands for the song mm. And then we just, it wasn't like, we just naturally yeah. let go. And then they did the final song, which was the, they came out for one more encore and it was Rocket in the Free World. And then she just goes, all right, I'll see you later. Yeah. And she left. And then Moz, this guy goes, fuck, what are you doing? Fucking get it. Go and change. She's got friends. And so- oh, yeah, she's got friends. <laughs> he didn't really care about you. He's like, well, she's no way. He was in it for yeah. him. And he's like, what are you doing? And so they like disappeared into mm. the crowd. He's going, we got to get him. And so we're <laughs> following these. And they, they drifted into the, they drifted into the night. And that was it. And it was just the single most magical. Like I was floating for the rest of yeah. the night. Then fast forward, the next night they played at my music bowl. Mm-hmm. That's become a quite legendary gig because they my music bowl didn't really host those kind of gigs at the time, but they couldn't get the tennis center. So same three of us go, but this time we bought the one kid that you, you have at high school that knows how to get marijuana. Oh yeah. So he comes. And we go to the gardens, like outside the MCG, and we get really stoned. And you could hear Pearl Jam playing like across the bridge. It was coming out of the My Music Bowl. We go to the My Music Bowl, and literally as we get there, we hear these people go, the fences are down. Because you remember the fence? So, and as we're running over the fence, like the fence was just pushed down and dudes are just like running over it, spilling into the thing. We hear Eddie Vedder. You know, they used to do a cover in the middle of Daughter. They'd always segue into a song and the cover they went into that night was The Wall by Pink Uh Floyd. As we run in, I hear Eddie Vedder go, I swear to God, he goes, the fences are down, let them in. And everybody (laughs) just goes fucking crazy. We run in. We lost each other. And this is pre-mobile phones because it was just such a rush running in. We run in and about halfway up the hill and I'm standing next to a girl. It wasn't the girl with the hand, but I thought, okay, I've got this magic thing now. You just have to ask. Can you like Mm. hold hands? And then everything's... And then... So she was quite short and she kept jumping up to see because it was so packed by that stage. And it got to a particular song and you could see. And then I said, because I thought you'd just ask, I go, do you want to get on my shoulders? And she goes, nah. (laughs) (laughs) And the spell was done. I had it for like 24 hours. And I was like, did I, was it that we were stoned? Was it, and it's just like, it just some nights it doesn't happen for I mean, you. some yeah. nights that you're just making a sensible decision not to get on the shoulders of a stoned teenager, <laughs> I would have thought. <laughs> Might be less about you and more about her good decision making, I would suggest. Also, I'm such a fuckhead because holding hands is a uh. quite quaint, simple gesture. Right. There's not would you like to wrap your legs around my neck? <laughs> I wasn't, I swear, I was thinking I can help her. I'm a tall kid. Mm -hmm. She can see everything. After that, maybe we hold hands. (laughs) But in my mind, it wasn't as sleazy as what you've made it sound. But yes, you're quite right to say to a stranger, Mm. climb on top of this very wobbly 190 centimetre 15-year-old guy who's stoned. I'm definitely stoned, (laughs) but if you'd like to rub your vagina on the back of my neck, complete stranger. Hey, I've been really stoned, wobbling for the yeah. whole night. I'm getting oh. all the song words wrong. Like, oh, I jumped over the fence. <laughs> I need to. Point I didn't out, pay. I um, did not pay. I'm here illegally. I've lost all my I'm friends. A stoned teenager with no friends who's illegally at this gig. But would you, a complete stranger, like to climb on board the back of my neck? I'm surprised she said no. To be honest, mate. 
We're such a compelling bitch. <laughs> oh, this has been such a journey. I haven't, okay. I haven't thought. So about I thought it. we were done with Pearl Jam, but I've got it now that we've okay. talked about this. I've got a couple more things yeah. I want to share with you. So, firstly, is so <laughs> Pearl Jam. Um, I, I, they. had a weird history with the big day out so when I was at Triple J one of the things that I was very lucky to do was like travel around all the big days out we do all of them every year I've probably been to like 40 big days out it's incredible life experience that I feel like just to see so many great bands live but also have the opportunity to see them city after city doing their shows Famously, the big day out went mm. under. Pearl Jam were the last yeah. headliner. It didn't sell well for a whole bunch of different reasons. It was mostly to do with the rest of the lineup. It wasn't necessarily mm. yeah, Pearl yeah. Jam's fault. But, but maybe they- don't tell everybody you're going to have the one performance of Blur mm. for that year. Let them buy tickets. And go, oh, we don't have Blur. We've got oh, yeah, Pearl Blur, Jam. Blur aren't coming. Sorry <laughs> yeah. about that. They were coming until three days ago. So yeah, anyway, right. Pearl Jam is still here, guys. <laughs> the band that tour every six months. So... Better get in and pay a premium for that band. You'll be able to see it in another three weeks somewhere else. But, but of course, they stopped playing festivals after yeah. Ross Kilda when somebody died right. in their audience, which I thought about a lot mm. when we were coming back from COVID. Yeah. When people were rushing back yeah. from COVID to do shows, yeah. the big thing that stopped me performing for a year yeah. was I do not want to... I don't want to... Yeah. There's this incredible uh, podcast they do about the big day out and mm. how yeah, yeah, yeah. when I was there the day that the poor girl died during the Limp Biscuit thing oh, in Sydney, yeah, right. I was yeah. at that show. Jesus. And yeah. I remember, because I was on Triple J, I remember it was quite a big yeah. thing at the time. And her yeah. family have never... Like, they're... You know, she was out doing what she loved mm. and she, they don't blame the big day out. Mm. The big day out were pretty much cleared of, you know, most mm. you know, things around it. But everyone who they speak to mm. said they went from having the best job in the world mm. to the joy having yeah. gone away from. Yeah. And that was my thing with COVID yeah. was I know I knew that if I went out and did a show yeah. and suddenly someone got COVID and died, that wasn't going to technically be my fault. But I yeah. wondered how... I would have the joy of yeah. going back to my job totally. ever again yeah. if I yeah. felt like I'd been irresponsible with yeah. that. But anyway, I wanted to tell you these Pearl yeah. Jam things. Two things. Firstly, I used to DJ weddings, which I think yeah. you and I have spoken about before. Yeah, yeah. People think this is a joke, but it's not a joke. Yeah. Once had to play as the Bridal Waltz, you twos, I still haven't found what I'm looking yeah. for, which I think is amazing. <laughs> but the other one yeah. that would come out every now and yeah. again was Better Man. Yeah. And they would, you know, I'd like yeah. to dedicate this to my husband, yeah. Better Man. Yeah. And you'd be like... Yeah. It's weird because Eddie Vedder dedicates it to the bastard who married his mum. Yeah. So, <laughs> if you just do any investigation into this, yeah. the lyrics of this the song. The most cursory <laughs> listen to maybe the first three lines of the song, like of a child terrified the dad's going to come home. Yeah. Well, <laughs> anyway, here comes yeah. the bride. <laughs> well, I did. I, this is one thing I remember yeah. from last time is I told you I was at a wedding of my um, cousin and the best man, uh, She, it's a she, and she was marrying this guy who's, you know, at the time was a little bit overweight. I'm a little bit overweight. It's not a criticism. But his best man gets up and his speech was he changed the lyrics of better man to fatter man. And it was literally, can't find a fatter man. And he tried to get the crowd to sing it. And it's all my like Irish relatives. <laughs> Nobody. He had a guitar. He'd learnt it. Like he'd done the full thing. And it was like, waiting, watching the clock. And it was like, oh, fuck, I can't even remember. You know, it's beer o'clock. Yeah. Like, and it's everything he eats in the night. <laughs> 
And then he, in his mind, and this is an interesting yeah. thing because we at least, if you've performed a lot or you've worked in performance, you start to make educated guesses about mm-hmm. how, how the crowd will mm-hmm. react in certain things. It doesn't always happen. No. But in his mind, there was no doubt that the crowd was going to join in on the can't find a fat man. <laughs> And nobody did. Not even the fucking, like, the groomsman. Like, he was alone just going, you know. The, and then he even goes with the, oh. And my, I remember my sister just looking at me going, this is one of the fucking weirdest things I have ever seen in my life. A guy in the, like, St. Kilda Yacht Club just belting out, can't find a fatter man. There's something I love about um, anticipated... Mm like either applause or audience interaction mm. that then doesn't arrive, but the person is clearly... Yeah. like a, a comedian, yeah. like a performer, yeah. like we have those moments as well, but yeah. we have learnt the skill yeah. of making it appear to the audience yeah. that that didn't happen. Yeah, right. right. Like, yeah. you know, going for that thing, everyone's going to sing along, yeah. noticing they didn't yeah. and smoothly transitioning yeah. through no, it. No, because you know how to get out of it. Right. Yeah, you don't double down on it. You make a choice and you shift the energy and you move yeah. on. Whereas yeah. a non-professional performer, they go the yeah. opposite direction, which yeah. is they can't quite understand how this bit that yeah. I was once hosting the um, Good Food Awards for the yeah. Sydney Morning Herald yeah. and... Bob Carr, the Premier of New South Wales, mm. was like the feature note speaker at mm. the end of the night. So when I got up there to do sort of the thank yous yeah. and the wrap up of the evening, he had left the last page of the speech oh. that he had done yeah. on the podium. It's the nightmares we all have. Yeah. And so on the podium, yeah. it literally has like in the notes, like yeah. whoever's written the speech for him has written like pause for laughter, hold for applause. Oh, wow. And so, of course, because I'm a lovely and wonderful yeah, yeah. person, yeah. I then had to read all that oh out. Oh, my God. But anyway, final story about Pearl Jam and then we'll get into it. And then the, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to okay. give you one that will round Pearl Jam yeah, off. And then we'll be done yeah. with the... Yeah. <laughs> Pearl Jam portion <laughs> yeah. of today's. Yeah, the Pearl Jam cast. Yeah. Uh, Indifference being your yeah. like favourite song or one of your favourite yeah. songs. Yeah. I have just a little story yeah. to tell that I rarely get to tell to anybody who would actually enjoy this story. Yeah. So you're the one. Yeah. Uh, I was at the gig in Sydney. Yeah. I'm going to say it was at Caroline's, but it might not yeah. have been. I can't remember. It blurs. Where Ben Harper came out oh, yeah. and sang yeah. Indifference with Eddie Vedder. Or yeah. was it a Ben Harper gig and Eddie yeah. Vedder came out? Yeah, no. Th- oh, yeah. Sang, yeah. It's quite a like a famous yeah. recording. But yeah, I was actually it. there yeah. that night. You and were I there. Remember, and so you didn't know that no, they were going to... I did not know. That is... that When I heard that, that was like... It took me to a whole other level with that song because it stripped it. I mean, it was already pretty stripped back, but it stripped it even further back. That is a remarkable. I mean, it's it's not a cover because Eddie Vedder's right. singing his own song, but it's a remarkable newer version of that song. You were there, like I was there that night. I mean, was it like just tingles? Oh, I mean, on an the, amazing gig yeah. anyway. I mean, yeah. I think it was a Ben Harper gig. It was a Ben Harper gig, and Eddie yeah. Vedder came out. Because I feel like Eddie Vedder's not playing Caroline's. Like I no. feel like he's yeah. yeah. That's what I, my memory yeah. of it is. Because yeah. I've seen Ben. Harper twice. The other time was at Festival Hall, which is yeah. not a very Ben Harpery mm. vibe festival hall. Yeah. But I remember going um, uh, on a date actually to yeah. Festival Hall to see Ben Harper. And That's I rem- a good date. Yeah. I remember thinking yeah. distinctly yeah. that um, I remember there were, he had the the human beatbox guy oh, yeah, who would come yeah. out for like Steal My Kisses or whatever yeah, it was yeah. that he did the human beatbox. Yeah. And it was his only bit in the entire yeah, well, show yeah. and I just remember thinking 
that's probably a pretty good job. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like touring yeah. around the world, getting to go to yeah. all these cities, but just, all you've got yeah. to do, yeah. three and a half minutes every yeah. night, steal my kisses. Like one of his biggest songs too. So you come out, <laughs> yeah. you do Everybody your loves box, you. Yeah. and then you're just back to the It's the so much easier than the hype man right. who has to keep everybody up before the show, yeah. through the show. This guy's just got to do it once yeah. and then go. That is, that is a sweet gig. Yeah. That's a sweet gig. All right. So, okay. okay. So this, yes. so, so to, round it off I think I'm okay to take this if, if my to say this if my Catholic guilt kicks in I'll call you in the week and say so a guy that I went to school with who was a very creative guy we played in a band together at school his cousin was one of the people in Ross Gilder who oh, yeah. passed okay. away yep. and um, anyway and this is what made me like Eddie Vedder more is apparently Eddie Vedder the day after rang the family and said if you need anything, do you want me to come out there? Do you need money? Do you need support? And spoke to them, gave his number, and um, and then routinely after that checked in with the family to the point that my friend, I don't think he'd want to be named, but my friend was at home once and he gets his phone call from his uncle and aunt who say, hey, do you know this band Pearl Jam? And he goes, yeah, yeah. And uh, I nearly said his name, but he, he loved playing guitar. He played a lot of Hendrix stuff at school. And he goes, yeah, I know them. I don't know them that well, but, you know, I know what happened. And she goes, well, Eddie Vedder and one of the other guys have dropped into our house because they were playing in Melbourne and are here and – we're gonna we said we'll just have a barbecue do you want to come around maybe you can talk music with them <laughs> and he comes around he's not the hugest pearl jam fan yeah. but he knows who they are and like they're talking it's obviously awkward because of everything that's mm-hmm. happened and then eddie apparently said do you play music man and my friend said yeah he does and he goes you got a guitar he runs home gets his guitar comes back and jams with pearl jam in the backyard at this barbecue in Ivanhoe right and uh, anyway uh, that that to me always made me like like it, it's not like the fact that he took responsibility for it and it, it just made me really like Eddie Vedder I think yeah. they've always been you know I mean I think that he's always he, he strikes me as someone who's always tried his best doesn't yeah, always get it does not, yeah. right but who in the Buddhist sense does? his Eddie's intentions are correct yeah. in the Buddhist sense I don't know if Jeff A. Mentz fashion intentions yeah. <laughs> are correct um, there's a thing in Buddhism called bad faith and he may have been on the bad faith side of fashion choices <laughs> since the early 90s you're a good person but something happened in your past life that's responsible for that hat that's yeah, all I'm that's saying <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah. uh, PTSD is yeah. a little interesting topic yeah. because you said you didn't want to like diminish people who have real PTSD, yeah. but yeah. I think that PTSD, like many yeah. uh, afflictions, is something yeah. that has various levels. Yeah, and we're here in Melbourne. Uh, mm. We're in the Melbourne Comedy Festival at the moment. There mm. are only a couple of days to go yeah. of the month-long festival that I believed was never going to happen. Yeah, like, amazing. Part of the yeah. reason I'm doing an old show mm. this season is because. I just didn't think that we yeah. were going to have the opportunity to do the festival. And the fact that it's happened, the fact mm. that venues are back to 100%, that people are coming out and seeing shows is amazing. But what I've definitely noticed mm. is there are a lot of people coming out to see my show. Mm. It's the first time they've gone out to do anything with yeah. a group of people for a year. Yeah, and you're, you're the year. thing that they're coming at. Yeah. And 
they can genuinely you can feel it in the audience yeah there's a point where they relax and go okay we're here and we're doing it but yeah. the first sort of five or six minutes yeah there are still night to night a whole mm. bunch of people still getting their bearings yeah. there is that sense of totally ptsd like yeah. i mean a, a molder form maybe no, not like I, the, but i think it yeah. is there so i completely agree with you it uh, i helped worked on two shows for this festival i directed greg larson's show and i I don't know what you'd call my role, but I helped Dave Quirk um, uh, structure his show and stalk the person who he hunts down in his show. If that if that makes any it's sense, it's a collaboration. Yeah, it's a co- it's a, it's a collab. Yeah. Um, what you've said <laughs> makes it sound even worse than yeah. it actually is. Though. Stalk's the wrong word. I helped him. It's talk- actually kind of the right word, yeah. but in yeah. context, yeah. it's not what you're. So thinking. I I kind of helped him a yeah. bit on it, and then I just said, look, I'll you know I'll go to your first few shows and take notes. He's telling a yeah. very personal story, and um. And so I went and he opened a bit earlier because he wasn't in the town hall. And I went on the Wednesday and it was still with lowered like 80, 75% crowds. And I, as he, as it, he, he'd gone backstage and then the crowd came in and then I realized, fuck, I'm really tense. And I was like, I think I'm fine about Dave's show. And then I realized it was actually the people coming mm-hmm. in. It's quite a, he's in Comedy Republic. It's quite an enclosed space. And I suddenly realized that I haven't sat with heaps of, we were really locked down in the lockdown that we had two kids. My partner's mum is very immunocompromised, ended up in hospital during that time. Like we were really careful about it. And I suddenly, and I'm a quite social person, but when you remove that, like, and as soon as I saw everyone coming in and then someone sat next to me, and I even felt myself go sideways on the seat. And I noticed as everyone sat down, everybody had a similar feeling. And I know, and for a lot of people, it was their first night out. And I noticed that like there was a tentativeness at the beginning of the gig from the crowd because we'd forgotten how to behave in groups. Like it's quite a remarkable thing that the comedy festival is the first gathering and it's not just one night. It's a lot of nights rolled in. And so you've got this journey where it's kind of helping people get out. Like what a thing to have gone from being on your own to then suddenly going to shows and laughing. Like it's a massive, you know, cause if you're, if you are all laughing, it's quite communal. It's funny that it's, I mean, in some ways, in a different year, it'd mm. probably be the sort of thing that, like, mm. I bitched about. Like, you know, when you have privileged bitching, yeah. which is <laughs> the people aren't really telling me that they're loving the show. They're telling me that they're loving being out amongst yeah. people again. Yeah. But that is their yeah. overwhelming feeling. The yeah. amount of messages I get uh, from people saying, this was my first night yeah. out it's and silent. it was great to be amongst people again, yeah. to enjoy it again. But, yeah. but how nervous they were about that entire process. Yeah. And I can't even, like, I mean, Melbourne... I think the comedy festival is a good example because it was the first thing to go. Yeah. And it's kind of the first major thing in a way to come back. You know, oh, it's I been re- a real testing ground I remember for getting that people night. back into audiences. So that, that was what, March 13 is when the lockdown yep. happened. We actually had our last ever Sweetest Plum. It was our 10-year podcast uh, anniversary on that thir- March 13. Yep. Friday, March Friday 13th. The 13th. Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th. And <laughs> it was that morning the Grand Prix was cancelled. Yep. And it was... I remember a friend messaging me from America. He's saying, hey, what's going on? Like, what's this COVID thing? I was like, mm. I don't know. Like, like it kind of wasn't a thing and now it looks like it's mm. a thing. And then that night I was in a taxi going to a gig and I suddenly the messages started to come through. The comedy festival's been cancelled, which if you've been doing it, you've been doing it actually a bit longer than me. But if you I think my first one was 2001, if mm. you've had involvement in it for that long, like it is the one of the tent poles of a year. It's a constant 
and I just was in this taxi driving to this gig and I was just, it kind of only a small amount of the enormity hit me because it was so enormous and I rang Greg Larson because he had already trialed the show in Brisbane and he was driving back down and he already knew and it was kind of like he was in shock like we we're both in shock and I remember he said he's getting tired of me telling this story but it is true he said because his show is really great it's called this might not be hell and it's about a year of his life on the dole in 2004 and he he said, he goes, do you know what? For 10 years in the week before the festival, I haven't been ready. And I've had a night where I've prayed that the festival would be mysteriously shut down and I wouldn't have to do it. And he goes, the one year I didn't pray, the festival got mysteriously shut down. He goes, what the fuck does that mean, man? And I was like, I don't know. But it, yeah. And then I it rang. It means it is a very human thing to yeah. make something that is not about us about us. No. <laughs> I mean, that's what it actually yeah, no, means. It is. It is. It's yeah. incredibly human. Yeah. Like I had the thing of yeah. like last year mm. would have been my 25th year oh, in right. a row. Yeah. And I'd once joked to somebody that if mm. I did 25 years in a row, I'd retire. Yeah. yeah. And like, I'm yeah. pretty sure the pandemic didn't happen just so that I wouldn't retire from comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know that we do that. We 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 funnel it yeah. through. It. Grief is a. It, it, it. I went through a lot of grief in my early twenties, and it, it is a quite. You're allowed to. You can get into this loop where you go. I don't want to feel selfish about it, but this is how I feel. But I don't want to feel selfish. I know other people, and you can get into a really bad grief loop. And I remember speaking. Uh, it's actually. Well, I have a odd relationship to the comedy festival anyway because we'd done reviews all through uni and just, you know, those shows that mates do at uni. And then in 2001, we decided let's do one for the comedy festival. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like, we didn't think we were going to be the stars. It was just like, Hey, this is a fun thing. We put it on at RMIT collide. And so hang on. So t- t- tell me more about yeah. the show though. Like what's, what is it called? It how many people I hate saying the name. It was a fucking embarrassing name. That's was, why I want to yeah. know what the name is. <laughs> I, it was one of those names where no one agreed and like yeah. someone wanted to call it guerrilla comedy. And then somebody had this other, like didn't want to do, cause we were gorillas that were going to like attack the comedy oh. festival. That might've been me who wanted to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Then another guy was a bit more self-deprecating, and he wanted to call it comedioca. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. so, but I don't. I've never really liked like I don't know. I don't like like flagging negatives. Like I think mm-hmm. you should be like, hey, this is a great thing. Like yeah. I don't like yeah. Anyway, and so it became this argument. The show became guerrilla comedioca. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're of all the stuff we've talked, we just talked about like tragedies and people that gigs are dying. And oh, I don't think anything's been as tragic as what you just, just told me. <laughs> The fact that you've compromised so uh, that neither of them have a chance of working as a name. It's, like- no, and you had to say it to people for the whole three weeks and hand them a thing and they go, what is it? Gorilla? Well, gorilla Comedioca. Yeah, I know, I know. I do not it's, understand this. But it's actually a really good lesson. Like, mm. If two people are arguing in a writer's room or on a duo or a, just anything creative, like... It's not about like both people winning. Like you can't split the difference. Right. It's about finding something that you agree on together. It's actually yeah. a really great lesson because if you don't do that, then for four weeks mm. you have to explain a name to people. Gorilla comedioca. <laughs> God, like I mean seriously. And then one. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
I mean, you were ready for it too. You like just tell me that. I've heard lots of shit names. I've been to thousands of gigs. Just well, so, and your whole body. I like, didn't realise it was the, the like. I mean, that is a real sort of like that. Being a Catholic kid, that feels like a parable. It feels like the parable of the two sons who couldn't agree on the comedy yeah. name. Yeah. And so, the father just said, "Well, we're just going to combine the name. Yeah. And you're both going to have to say that name yeah. for a month. And then you, how will you feel about compromise? And, and the, yeah. Well, that's it because that's what happens. Yeah. And you. <laughs> you cut the possibility of it being good enough. <laughs> but then the other guy was a designer and he put this right. weird like sort of Russian like picture of a like a kind of stick figure like smashing with a sledgehammer, smashing the name. So okay. I wanted to be like we were smashing the comedy festival, mm. but now the name was getting smashed. <laughs> it was a mess. It was a, it was a mess. Okay, so how many people are in the cast of this thing? From memory, I want to say seven. And all writing and performing, or yeah. was it even one of those days where you were doing the majority? No, of the no, no. In that one, it was pretty even. We'd, we'd done a bunch of reviews at uni, so we picked mm-hmm. like who we thought were people that we like, you know, that we thought, oh, this is all like one of the girls was really good at doing comedy songs, and another one was very kind of absurdist, and uh, it's making me so anxious talking about this show. And uh, so, yeah, we kind of picked this selection of people and then decided to put it on. Like, we, mm-hmm. had, we you know, in as far as uni shows go like you know we sold out one or two shows and it was still in that era of the melbourne university law review where people would get picked up to be in shows like you know charlie yeah. pickering was picked out of one i saw um, Char- that yeah. charlie pickering show yeah well there you go now, yeah. can i ask yeah as opposed to the charlie pickering show yeah. not that i'm fingering yeah. charlie for this by the way <laughs> yeah because charlie was clearly the yeah. standout of that yeah. Uh, review. Yeah. He was the one who just had yeah. came alive on stage yeah. as a performer. But it was fair to say there was a couple of sketches in there that, you know, were better when Ben Elton had originally done it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we had one of those two. We had one that a guy just lifted yeah. from SNL because it was hard to get right. SNL then. And it wasn't until years later, I was watching on YouTube and I was like, hang on, that Colombian drug dealer one. the Saturday Night Live of Rick Yeah, that's what... <laughs> Gorilla <what> Comedioca. <laughs> Stop saying it. <laughs> Imagine that ever goes to court and it's like the case of Gorilla Comedioca okay, versus, versus Lorne Michaels. <laughs> <laughs> It was, yeah, look, we all did it. We all, yeah. we would all take something and then you'd put a little spin on it to at least, mm. you know, kind of make it. Everybody, I think sometimes you do it almost accidentally. You accidentally, yeah, I'm sure you did it with stand up. You kind oh, of, you like absolutely. a bit. It's, I am not comparing anything I ever did to John Lennon, mm. but there's that in uh, Come Together. He wrote it, they recorded it, they put it out, and then some music reviewer said the first verse is a Chuck Berry verse, which is he'd come old flats up, he got moving up slowly. And, he goes, I didn't know. Also, they were taking a lot of psychedelic drugs. So, But I also think yeah. when you're starting out, like, I mean, yeah. they, they say it a lot about music, right? Yeah. yeah. That you, you know, you start kind yeah. of, you know, doing yeah. covers of all your favourite yeah. artists. And yeah. certainly as a comedian, that... Yeah. That is, I mean, yeah. my, one of my first jokes mm. was, I, re- I realised in retrospect that mm. this is completely not on, but I yeah. was a kid coming into comedy and I, yeah. didn't, I didn't understand that this was not yeah. something you could do at the time. Yeah. It's literally basically beat for beat a Tony Martin joke. He did, yeah, this, right. he yeah. did this joke that I saw yeah. when I was like 14, 15 yeah. about lifestyle condoms. And yeah. it, the joke was, does that mean lifestyle is another word for penis? Yeah. And then the extrapolation yeah. is, you know, yeah. like, so the punchlines are things like, makes you wonder what lifestyles of the rich and famous are all about. Ah, right, right. yeah. And yeah. literally one of my first jokes was yeah. about Greek yogurt and Greek being another word for anal ah, sex. 
right, right. Yeah, like, yeah. So yeah. in my head, I'm like, well, this yeah. is a completely different joke. Yeah. His is about condoms. and yeah. But in retrospect, I'm yeah. like, oh, no, that's just the same structure yeah. of joke, so, but with yeah. different words. But you're, I think you're allowed to do that early on because it's no. like a kid learns by copying you, you know, mm. a kid learns by... So you're kind of allowed to do it out of naivety. When people are still doing it 10 years into their career, then we need to have a, yeah. a, a talk. But, um, yeah, I, I'm sure we all did that, especially then. Like, there was so much less that you could see. Mm. Like, my local Video Easy in Boleyn had, like four comedy videos there was an snl video there was a robin williams like live, live at in- the man that's the one he's yep. wearing a hawaiian shirt yep. is that and he's clearly just on cocaine yep. free associating every single thing that comes through his brain yep. like yeah that i watched that i i i would watch it and try to learn the structures but in that there's nothing to learn it's just a guy running around <laughs> saying whatever comes into his mind so what else was it there was at the jb hi-fi i bought a bill hicks cd oh yeah oh really yeah, that was that was the the heidelberg jb JB Hi-Fi was yeah. like this one weird glimmer of light. It was near the train station. And they. I later found out one of the reasons they had such a hip selection while I was growing up is Beck Hornsby, who is now the Triple R mm. program manager. Beck Hornsby was managing the JB Hi-Fi. Oh. And that's why they had like good okay. selections yeah. and stuff. There's a Bill Hicks CD, but there was a lot of like, you know, Martin Malloy stuff. Mm. And yeah, I'm sure I accidentally, like you, it's that kind of thing. Like you, you do it. And then one day you write something or you say something on stage and it doesn't sound like anything you've copied. And it's kind of this very weird kind of almost spiritual moment or something where you go, oh, that's what I sound like. Like it's a really weird moment. It may not get the biggest laugh or it may not get, but you just have this sense of, oh, that's what I sound like. It's like you've shed the skins of the other thing or something. And yeah, that. uh, so yes, there was, yes, that review was filled with, there was a lot of people wearing the skins of (laughs) classic old comedy. Well, that's what university reviews tend to be. That's why why I asked more than anything. Okay, but you said you had a like bad experience with the show. I did, I did. It's funny, it's interesting. I was thinking as I was driving here, I avoided this last time when I spoke to you because mm. we were having, I hadn't really spoken to that many people during the lockdown and it was, the, we were having quite jocular thing and I actually afterwards thought, oh, that's interesting. I pivoted away from that and then I was thinking about it on the way going, I'll only talk about it if it naturally comes up. But so I was pretty like happy-go-lucky kid. Like, you know, I, I, I hadn't kind of experienced much kind of darkness to that point or whatever. So it was a week before the festival and I was just so excited we were going to do this. Like I would tell everybody, I, I didn't even realise at that stage how bad the name of the of the show was. Gorilla Mediocre. <laughs> Gorilla Comedio. Mediocre, sorry. Yeah, 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 sorry. Come on, let's get it. Gorilla Comedio. Historical. Um, yeah. <laughs> Don't know why that came out that way. <laughs> and then, yeah, it was about, uh, it was about a week before the gig and I, Ironically, used to play in a little. Uh, I was also playing in this little trio of guys, and we just do covers at like songs at uni, probably a couple of Pearl Jam songs, I think. And uh, it was about a week before the festival, and we had our house was on this split level, so the main bit of the house was there, and we were on this hill, and there was a little like kind of office bungalow down the bottom that had like windows that looked down the driver. And I remember rehearsing with these guys who had nothing to do with the comedy festival show, but. Uh, I saw the police driving up, uh, coming up the driveway. And my first thought was, oh, maybe we've been too loud. And one of the neighbours, it was like Bulleen, it's very old Italian neighbours. And I thought, fuck, have we been too loud? Like, and, 
then the police came in and they said, oh, have you got a moment? And I was like, is Declan Faye here? And, and I said, yeah. And she said, anyone else here? And I said, my sister's upstairs. And we went up and uh, the police told us that uh, our dad had died like that day in a car accident. Well, and it was, he had a heart attack while he was driving. And yeah, and so you literally, I still remember that moment. Like I... I had in my hand like a bunch of like chords written out on paper and my kind of only memory of it is is like just the paper all dropping because like your body just loses all kind of muscles and uh and like sense and then I was just you're kind of in shock and they're like do you need us to call him my mum didn't have a mobile and she was out she used to go to dinner with like these other mums and uh then uh and they said no I said no we're okay I've got my friends downstairs I'll uh my sister's here and then she goes all right we'll we'll you know if you need us this is a number the police were really excellent and they leave my sister and i are sitting there and you, you of course you don't know what to say you don't have any sister older or younger three years younger okay you don't have any training for this moment i was no. 21 she was 18 mm. and you're just like fuck and like you're adults but you're barely adults oh, totally That's, it's that thing where you know your kind of parents have got you through yeah you know the bit but you're not ready no and we both lived at home like we were like we were young young Mm. adults like and uh anyway i remember the police left and we're going like what do we what do we do fuck chris and matt are still downstairs Mm. and then as we're sitting there the woman cop came back in and i remember thinking oh fuck she's gonna tell us it's a mistake like because your brain is so panicking that's what it like, wants yeah you, your brain's like no no no, no. yeah it's, it's, i remember this thing yeah. i oh, she'll say they mm. fucked up it's somebody else like because mm. why is she walking back into the house and she comes uh, i i feel so sorry for her because she goes oh, i just i left my folder on the couch and she's, and she's trying to get it and pages are falling out oh, like no. even in that moment there's the darkest comedy oh, and like there's pages and she's i'll oh, just are you i've still you can call us and like oh, she's backing God. out of the thing fuck it was intense Dude. imagine her yeah. like because she was clearly the junior cop and i often thought after that i wonder if it was the guy's folder and he goes now nah, you're going back in you're the junior cop or even she- just i don't know how experienced she was in delivering that news as yeah. a you know, having done a journalism degree, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. that thing of having to go and do a death knock, which yeah. is like a bit of a rite of passage in the yeah. world of journalism, which yeah. is being yeah. the person who knocks on the door of someone who's just had mm. someone killed or you know, yeah. died in some way. Mm. It's a horrible thing to do. And I imagine if you're police, and you, yeah. like it's just part of what you have to do. And it's, uh, it's funny you say the death knock. I will come back to mm. that night, but I, I, after I'd given writing and comedy a really good go, you know, we all have little ruts that we hit when kind of everything seems to go wrong in the one year, (laughs) 2006, I think it was just nothing came off. And I just thought to myself, I'm supposed to be a journalist because that's mainly what my dad had been. I thought I'll just do that. I've been avoiding that. I'll do it. I sat the age entrance uh, test and got Mm -hmm. to the interview and thought I'd done well in the interview. And a day later, the guy calls me and he said, you did really well, but we're not going to give it to you. And I said, why? And I actually remember feeling this relief. But then at the same time, like, oh, fucking why? You're giving it to me like a weird mix mm-hmm. of both. And he said, I've just got this feeling that you're a writer and you're not a journo. And he said, Cause, and if we put writers in here, it always ends really badly because they want to write what they want to write and they don't want to write what we want them to write. And then he said, I just... And he said, if you can argue me out of it, I'll... And then I was like, oh, and then he said, okay, today, and it's amazing you said that, he said, 
there was a cadet that got sent to the house of a woman whose kid had died being hit by a car somewhere in Mildura or and he said and it had to knock on the door and get a quote and then get a quote from the neighbors and he goes would you want to do that and I said no nah, I wouldn't and I said and he said that's what I reckon and he goes I reckon you want to write but you don't want to do that and he was if I ever meet that guy he I remember distinctly had a very massive bald head like sort of like he was wearing a stack hat that was covered in skin on top of his head (laughs) if I ever meet that guy or he by somehow by sheer fluke the guy that works for Fairfax in HR I want to thank him enormously because he was correct and it I couldn't have done it it's not it's not who I am I'm not invasive like that I couldn't have done it but yeah so and you know because of moments like that and that you know that cop coming back in so we eventually i won't get into the intricacies of it but we rang around and we were able to find where mum was and then somebody went and drove and got her and she came home and you know in that moment everything's changed like to the point i remember opening the fridge because mum used to leave like dinner for my dad in the fridge and there was still his plate with his name on it that night and you just go like fuck it's just everything flipped in that moment like Everything has changed. You talk about the idea of like dad having to roll himself into the beetle. Yeah. Were you aware of his mortality or was it still an absolute shock when it happened? That's remarkable that you say that because, well, two things. Maybe, maybe like six or seven years before that, he came home on a Monday night and he was very slurry and bumping into things and he'd been working somewhere. And my mum was like, why are you drunk on a Monday? Like, and really drunk, like bumping mm. into things. And then the next morning he was still bumping into things and mum was like, what the fuck? And then when he went to leave, he went to like walk through the window next to the, mm. uh, next to the door. And mum was like, something's wrong. And she was like, you're not going to work. Something's wrong. And then the only way he would listen, like you've got one emergency card with a fucking stubborn Irish guy and that is call his mum. And so my mum <laughs> called his mum and his mum like on an old school, like hands free. I could just, it wasn't speaker. You could just yeah. hear him going, Jesus, get yourself into fucking bed. Don't leave the fucking house. And like, he's like, okay, okay. Like you literally, that's your emergency yeah. ripcord. Call the Irish mum. And like, I remember her voice booming out. And it, it turned out he'd had a very, uh, he'd had a small um, stroke. And so, uh, that was the first time, but even then I didn't kind of get it because, yeah, oh, he's fine now. Like everything, like in your mind, you oh, someone's sick, they get better. So I don't think that, I don't think I had, uh, no, I don't think I had. I hadn't had really any death. Like I'd had one grandparent die. No, I wasn't aware at all. And so no, I didn't have any framework for it or anywhere to plug it into. And so, I, but I do remember the next day, that mum was friends with someone who was a a counsellor and he just said, I do want to talk on the phone. And he said to me, and that's why that thing we're saying about grief being personal. Like he said, you're going to go through lots of stuff. And he said, just remember, however you feel is how you feel. Like if you want to go out with mates, go. If you don't want to go out, it's how you feel. You've got to trust yourself. And then he said, I've used this advice for the rest of my life. I go, I don't know what to do next. Do you plan the funeral? Do Do I talk to these guys about this comedy show? And he goes, deal with whatever in the morning deal with whatever the thing was that kept you up at night like whatever was bothering you and it's been such a good piece of advice that i've used to this day but then i remember thinking all right i don't know what to do about this show because it starts in like five days and i said to mum, like 
what should I do? Like, I feel like I should be here to help you. And she goes, there's nothing to do here. Like after the funeral, there's kind of, you get for two days, all this food, like you literally mm. can't eat it and flowers. And then it, you have the funeral and then it kind of tails off. And she goes, I think you should do it because your dad loved that you were doing that show and you seem so happy about it. And she goes, I think it'll give you something to aim for each day. And so I rang the guys and I said, I'll do it. And if it feels wrong, I'll drop out. And so I did it and it became this very, this was the, it's interesting. You asked me last time, where did comedy begin for you? And I thought about saying this and then I don't know, we were laughing and I was happy to be talking to someone rather than my kids. And so I, I diverted away from it, but it, uh, I did it and it, what it became was for one hour. I'm sure you've had this where you've had terrible days or terrible weeks for one hour every night. It was like this freedom and this escape and it gave something to aim for. Like you might be, I don't know, trying to work out the life insurance or, you know, just the house is empty or what happens with his business or just feeling shit. And then, but you had this show and you could go and just lose yourself in it for this hour and people would laugh. And it was kind of like just this freedom for one hour or, you know, cause it was a uni review. It probably went for two and a half hours cause we had to put everyone's ideas in. But yeah, so you had this like literally every night it became this kind of odd safe place. And then it, but then I had this other thing going where I'd go, because I was so upset about everything, I wasn't like laughing much during the day. Like you'd go out and you'd make people laugh, but then you would feel shit during the day. And it became this kind of like, double like kind of yeah you kind of living in two worlds or something and then right at the end of that festival for some reason we couldn't use the venue that night it was the one night rmit had something on and we couldn't use the collide and so we all just went let's go to some shows and we had friends doing shows at trades hall and basically all the shows were sold out and we were like fuck what do we do because they're all like small rooms and stuff and I remember the one show that wasn't sold out was on at like 10 o'clock and the show, you, I'm sure you remember this show, the show was called Brian Munich and Friends. Yes, of course. And I walked in, knew nothing about it, nothing at all and as I didn't know the guys that were in it. I'd never seen their Channel 31 show because Channel 31 was pretty shit in Boleyn so you never got... Um, and it was these, at the time, three... So, so who was it at the time? It would have been Ray Matson, Jason Marion, and... And another guy called Mark Pengilly. Oh, yeah, I know Mark Pengilly, the pun Kirk, guy. Yeah, who was who was a pun guy who did <laughs> yeah. songs, who was Kirk Pengilly's brother, brother. From, right. in excess. from In Excess. Of course, I didn't know that yeah. at the time. I've since joined the dots, but they came out and I had never seen a comedy thing. Like I'd loved like Monty Python's or I'd love the young ones like as this absurdist. That's fucking insane. Like I always laughed at that, but I'd never, I don't know if anything had ever totally connected to me. Like in, you know, that song that you hear and you go, that's for me. Like, and they came out and it was this most cracked lens of Australian culture. Like one of them comes out as Bruce McAvaney and (laughs) did a song called, did a poem called semen of black. And then, I remember the thing. It was beware of the man with the semen of black. That was the of Bruce McAvaney doing right. this, and then they would have like Richie Benno came out and he's like the world champion uh, yo-yoer, and it was all this weird cracked lens of Australian of kind of pop culture and Australian culture. And I really I can't overstate it enough that 
it's the first time I properly laughed. Like these were, it was. I know everyone puts on their poster at different stages. It's dark and edgy comedy, but this was like, it was dark, but it was exactly how I felt about the world. He had this song where to let it be, he changed the lyrics to other me. And then he's like, when I find myself behind a tree, I say, I found me. Now it's your turn to hide other me. And like, for me, like everything was messed up. Like nothing, I didn't feel like, and then he goes, and then he handed me the bloody knife as we were running from the murder scene. You've really gone too far this time. Other me. Like, and it, the whole thing was, it was taking things that I loved. Like I, I love the Beatles, but then like, like kind of flipping it, like, to like kind of macabre or like it was like a kind of a cracked lens or something and it's the hardest like I was laughing but kind of crying at the same time like it was and I remember this relief of going I do find things funny like I've just been in a really dark place and I kind of it's the first time I've ever been in awe of a comedy thing and I just thought fuck that that's what I want to do like I don't know what this I have no idea what this is or how they made it that's what they want to do and then I didn't even know because you don't know when you're a young person any of the politics of the festival or I didn't even know like what the awards were and then I read in the newspaper two days later oh that Brian Munich show came from nowhere to win the Barry and most outstanding show and the Age Critics Award and I remember being happy for them but kind of sad that like you were like I thought I discovered this thing that nobody else knew about yeah I saw it with like eight dudes in the audience and then then they did an extended run and because uh, you asked me last time how did I get into comedy and I did a kind of circuitous way around it but this is the true way I they did an extended run for eight weeks of Brian Minnick at Trades Hall because mm-hmm. they'd never made any money during the show and I went maybe five times and I would take another group of friends I took my sister I took and the booking line was Jason Marion, Brian Munich, he was a character, his home line. Right. And he would answer the phone. And I was like, oh, my God, the guy is answering the... And by the fifth time I called, it was kind of like it was getting like this weird... And he just said, hey, you keep coming, don't you? And I was like, oh, yeah. And he goes, just, you can have free tickets. Like, you shouldn't keep paying for this. And then after that show, I went and said, hey, thanks for the free tickets. And that's how we became friends. And then... We I can't remember what the next step was. Oh, that's right. The next year I had joined a comedy group. We were doing a thing on Triple R. It was a group called The Pinch. We were nominated for Best Newcomer in the Comedy Festival and we played at the storeroom and Brian Munich was playing at the storeroom. And so we made friends with them and he kind of at that stage became a mentor and a friend. I remember he said, oh, if I, you know, I said, oh, if you've ever, if there's ever a chance to write comedy, like, I think that's what I'd like to do. And then remarkably about four years later, when I'd had a whole bunch of other stuff gone, he rang and said, I've become the head writer at Rove. <laughs> and he said, do you want to try out? And that's, I mean, I'm telling you that, that moves very rapidly through that, but that's, that was how I got, that was kind of how I got into all that stuff. So, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? So yeah. much of that story, I find. It's, firstly, it does not surprise me in any way that that hour was a relief every night. Oh, yeah. You mentioned the Barry, which is not called anymore. Because, no, the, uh, yeah. the best show at the. Well, I don't think it was called the Barry when Brian Munich won it. No, I think probably. it was pre. It was <laughs> yeah. pre Barry days, and yeah. now it's post Barry days because yeah. it turns out that. Barry Humphreys is a, had some interesting thoughts yeah, about <laughs> about some other stuff that's yeah. made it a little awkward. For, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, uh, but any but. One of my favorite quotes is a Barry Humphreys quote, and it actually speaks to exactly what you're talking about, which is 
he was once asked what it was like to walk out in front of 3,000 mm. people, what thought was going through his yeah. head. And he said, ah, alone at last. Ah, oh, what a fantastic quote. I understand. Fuck, I'm going to write, as soon as this is right? over, I'll write that down. That's I remarkable. understand what that means. Yeah. Because like you said, it's the question that people ask a lot of the time, don't mm. they? They go, when you're having a bad day, how can mm. you do your show? On the day when you're having a bad day, yeah. that's the day you need the show more than oh, the other day because for totally. you know, 80 minutes, yeah. all my job is is to concentrate on yeah. telling this story, like telling these jokes, doing this show. I cannot be it's, thinking about anything it's else. It's this kind of bizarre thing. Like, you know, comics and writers, like, we're very neurotic and we're kind of like we spend a lot of time in our own heads just by nature of the job. But a lot of writers, and I know writers that have struggled with it, don't have that outlet where you can then go on stage that night and um, and say the thing that you wrote during the day and kind of find a connection with people. This thing that you thought of in an empty house with no furniture in it, <laughs> you can then say, and it, and it may connect to one person or it may connect to the whole audience. This is a very odd comparison, but years ago I remember hearing the Chemical Brothers got tired of making their songs and trying to get like DJs to play them at nightclubs. So they got a DJing gig and they found some weird record pressing plant that would do it in a day. And so they could take what they'd made. This is like, you know, late 90s yeah. and get the record press so they could play it that night because before you could even burn CDs. And he said that was what made them because it kept the connection. They they wouldn't lose their shit trying to make something on their own the whole time. They could go and trial it that night and kind of feel the... It's not about, oh, what did they love? Leave that in. I mean, it is a bit, but it's also like okay, what is this? What's the, it, it shows you another part of it or how it connects to other people. And I think comedy is hugely fortunate for that, that you go from just writing on your own in this very small thing to suddenly you then have to open it up. It's a tremendously vulnerable thing. And it, I think something about that is what struck me is that, okay, this is an art form if I keep going down this path where I don't have to cover the vulnerability. Like when you're a young guy, and especially when I was coming up, I'm not going to say the names, but a lot of us were trying to be Bill Hicks and would go out with a beer yeah, and a cigarette absolutely, and would swear a lot, but not have many points. And that that's fine. You're trying that on, but there's this point. It's a rite of passage as a young comedian. It is. Yeah, it is. And it's <laughs> to miss all the important bits of Bill Hicks <laughs> yeah. and just <laughs> concentrate on the superficial shit that just isn't have important the cigarette in any way. Yeah. And, the, and the bit where you Talking yell. Talking about aliens. Yeah. Yell about it, aliens. Yeah, at the end. But I feel like that kind of happens with young comics now with Bill Burr. And it's fine. It's part of it. Like, it's Mm. part of it. But there is that moment, and we spoke about it before, where you say something and you go, fuck, that doesn't sound like anything I've heard before. And it's it's a remarkably vulnerable moment. And often, like what you're talking about, if you have a rough day and you need the show, like, your vulnerability is what opens you up to the audience. It's really, if you watch a show, like I've directed shows for the festival, and often comics will go, I can't get them to laugh at that bit anymore. You know that mm. one in the first two nights? And you go and they're delivering it exactly the same, but it's actually the vulnerability. Like yeah. what's the Leonard Cohen quote? There's a crack in everything. It's how the light gets in. It's early on when you're unsure of it and you're actually without knowing it more open. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of letting the audience in and so the audience letting you in. Yeah. And you're to, not saying to the audience also that you, you're not predicting the laugh. No, that's right. right. Yeah. You're saying the line in the hope that there's a laugh. Yeah. Whereas after people have laughed a few times, you're saying the line 
expecting the love. Yeah. And even if it sounds and looks exactly the same, yeah. it isn't for some no, reason. No, something has changed. It's like it, it, instruments change frequency mm. in different rooms. And you even if they were perfectly tuned before you walked in, you've got to tune them again. And it uh, it's kind of this... I mean, this a very early conversation I had with you years ago was... Uh, Actually, it was during Dirty Laundry and you came on and oh, yeah. I was one of the writers and you were talking about how you'd realised like the best gigs are where you meet the audience halfway. It's not about forcing your will on them. And the the analogy you used, I don't surf, but the analogy you used was, but I'm kind of interested in waves and my kids really like the beach and mm-hmm. I sort of think about it a bit. You said it's like surfing. I can only use the waves that are there. If I go out thinking I'm going to do some crazy thing and it's small waves, I'm going to fall off. It's going to be shit. Like you've got to kind of meet it halfway. And I think they're the best gigs where a audience or a performer, it's kind of like, and to go right back to what you're saying about the start of this festival, that's what I loved. I went four nights in a row and the comics were a little bit rougher than usual. I mean, rougher by softer, like just not as they didn't have like a four week Adelaide run and a week in Perth and then a week at the comedy store. And maybe like last year in Edinburgh, they were softer, but the audience was softer. And it kind of, there was some really beautiful moments I saw early on in the festival where it's almost like that, what you said, it's like we'll kind of, We'll help each other through this together, you know? Yeah. It's funny that um, I, when you tell a story like that and mm. with your good memory, mm. it just makes me realize that I barely update my reference points <laughs> at any point because the one that I've rolled out a lot in the yeah. last year when people talk about the idea of a yeah. year without crowds yeah. is I still use surfing. Yeah, but I'm like, yeah. it's a year without the ocean. We yeah. have just, like the show still exists. Yeah. Like, I mean, technically the show that I'm doing, yeah. I could do in this empty house on the roof yeah. but it doesn't exist without an audience no. like yeah. the ocean's got to be there for me to be able to surf regardless yeah. of what it is um okay so Declan tell me then uh we would have spoken about death last time but obviously mm. in a very different mm. context yeah. oh I should ask you this because it is the standard question and yeah. I know I asked you last time do mm. you have a life philosophy of some kind is there something yeah that- I did think should I change it from last time but I'm even more now after having been involved in this festival and thinking about it it is the the same one the beckett quote um fail again fail better i know there's a longer version of that but i didn't know that when i wrote it down when i was younger um it's something like no i can't remember the longer version but fail again fail better i mean to me it matches to it doesn't mean i'll go and fuck up and don't apologize and but it means it's actually one of the reasons i and much better writing for someone or directing or writing for myself is the one thing I didn't have is I really struggled to fail in front of an audience. Like when you say, and you said before we switched the mic on that, Oh, I'm going to do my, uh, another, uh, one of my impro shows. The idea of going out on stage and improing stand up to me is terrifying. Like, I think it's amazing, but it's also like, I, I didn't have that, I had that Irish Catholic thing. I don't want to let anyone down. If someone's paid for this gig, I don't want to let them down. But again, that's this, you're you're putting too much pressure on it and thinking it from your own because you can actually find these great accidental moments if you allow them to happen. But so, yeah, I still reckon it's... Yeah. Fa- the tri- the, by the way, the trick of the show, because everyone yeah. always like, what's the trick of the show? Yeah. There is no trick of the show. Yeah. Um, I don't prepare where I'm going to go. Yeah. There's none of that. Yeah. The trick is that there is no trick. Yeah. The trick is fail, fail better. Mm. 
every time you fail, every yeah. time you find yourself in a hole, yeah. call the fact that you're in a hole and yeah. then try to dig your way out of a hole. Totally. You know, find a better way to get out of yeah. the hole. Often that is... Like so much of the show is just me digging my way in and out of holes. Yeah, but and that there's the there's a thrill in that from the audience. Like it's like watching a kid on a I'm not a kid like watching someone on a tightrope. Mm. It's and you know someone who gets good at a tightrope they fake that they're about to fall off. Mm. But it's like watching someone in that stage where you can't take your eyes off them because of what might happen. Like. It's there's a great. I've always loved that. Like it's weird. I have two things. I love great writing, and I love great writing delivered. Like I think uh, Greg Larson's show that he's worked on is just stunning writing. I think it's got every bit of him in it of his mess of, you know, I mean his mess in the mess of his personality and his art. It's got his crassest bits. It's got his saddest bits. It's got his proudest bits. Yeah. And it's all woven, and it takes you on a journey through it. Well, that's what Greg is too. Yeah. Like I mean, I think that's the fundamental misunderstanding of people like Greg mm. is that. Like people go, oh, he'd be good if he just wasn't mm. this or if he'd be great yeah. if he wasn't but he, this. Yeah. But he's all of that. He is. And, and, yeah. and you've got to love all of it. Well, that's another quote. If I add a second quote to your thing, it's the Walt Whitman one, that I contain multitudes. Like you want to, when you work with someone, I reckon the best shows either that I've worked on or that people have done is where it's all of them in a show. It's you kind of get a bit of their impro, you get a bit of their darkness, you get a bit of their storytelling. Dave Quirk, the other show that I've kind of helped on a bit, it's all of him. He's got his kind of that nervousness that makes the audience nervous, but he's got his storytelling. He's got his kind of weird self-obsession in there. He's got his like absurd take. And then he's kind of like, oh my God, he's a very interesting, weird Aussie guy from the country that doesn't see anything like anybody else. And he's woven it all into something. Like I kind of love the shows of people that are their whole mess. And it doesn't mean go out there and just go, it means, okay, they've got that. Now, how do you weave it? and take people on a journey in it. And it's the same as a, you know, an improv thing. You're taking the crowd on a journey down the hole, out of the hole. They're kind of coming with you, you know, and it's kind of weird. I either love like a beautifully written show or I love something where someone just improvises. It's I kind of like the two sides of it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, death is something that comes up uh, obviously as a regular topic on this mm. show. And yeah, we've touched on it. Mm. Yeah. In a really major yeah. way this time, yeah. which kind of recontextualize, you know, the question from mm. last time, which yeah. is how present is death in your mind? Um, that's a very good question. I reckon it was, I was obsessed by it through my twenties. Mm. Cause I, it wasn't just my dad six months after my dad, my aunt died. And then six months after that, uh, girl that I'd been seeing and we just broke up died in a motorcycle accident. And so I was a very, I don't even know if I met you around that time, but I was, a, I had a real, it didn't take many drinks. I had a real seething anger. Like I'm so glad that I didn't do any, I think I had good friends. I didn't do anything too destructive during right. that time, but I, I was a real anger and it would, I could see it. I could see it because I was just quite strong personality. I could see it seep into other people around me. And then as I started to write, it start. I had this dumb idea I remember driving home one night and a girl that I knew said, it was around 2002 and this girl said, I'm really worried about you. Like you're so angry. I remember driving home and I was still living with mum in Bulleen and I drove past, there used to be a 24 hour Coles in North Baldwin and I drove in and got a notebook. 
and I thought I'll just write everything of how I feel and I had this idea if I wrote the perfect thing it would get it out like I literally thought if I wrote it, it'll be done. And I went home and I wrote it and it didn't, it didn't get it out, but it got it like a little bit out. So then I could sleep that night. Like it helped form it into something I could see. Mm -hmm. And then you do it again and it forms it and you see it from a different angle and you keep kind of doing it. And I don't think it ever cured it, but it's not even something that you cure. It's kind of part of you now. Like, and it gradually softened so much so I then stopped thinking I had a really good 30s and I stopped thinking about death that really I stopped ha- I used to always have dreams that I'd be chased like I was either yeah. running to something or running away mm-hmm. and then in my 30s especially getting together with my partner it just kind of Juanita it kind of stopped and it was like because I had stopped and but then just when you're feeling good about everything then you have a child and suddenly all those fears kick back in but through the child and you start to think like like I've had the thought so many times because my dad died when he was 52 okay I've got to be healthy I can't you know and I was doing quite well until the pandemic and uh but you you then so I yes I I think I I thought about it heaps then I thought about it less and now i kind of think about it in the middle um it still has a lot to do with um it kind of framed my world at a very formative moment and i think for me the the blessing and the curse of that period of doing like our uni review show it was just like there's a lot of silliness in it we're hitting each other over the head with things we're doing you know we'd take songs and change names like you know we'd take U2's beautiful day and turn it into beautiful bay about how shit Port Phillip Bay was. <laughs> I mean, I feel like they're the harder confessions to you than all the death telling you about this first show. But we, you know, I know it's a real tragic period in your life, but fuck, I would pay so much money to see a tape of there is a gorilla comedioca. There's a tape somewhere. Show. There's a tape. I'm sure somebody has a tape. One of the girls was going out with a a stoned cameraman and that it's probably sitting somewhere of VHS tape, but you would do that. And it was all fine. Like it's what you do when you're mm. 20, but there was this kind of flip that with what happened with uh, the deaths and then seeing that uh, Brian Munich show where I just went, no matter what now comedy for me has to have some element of darkness or truth or grit in it. Dudes that I've been in rooms with dudes that can just, fucking bang out a hundred gags and I admire it. Mm-hmm. I don't have that skill. Like I've been hired where at commercial things where they go, we just need a hundred gags on X topic. And I really struggle. I have to find some kind of truth to it, but it's just, it's been the blessing and the curse for me that I, it has to have some, it has to have some grit in it or some truth. Cause that's how I felt as I started to do this. This might be a weird question to ask. Yeah. You might not be able to answer yeah. it. Maybe I'll ask it in two ways and you yeah. can answer whichever way you would like. Yeah. What's the best thing you've ever written or what's the thing you've written you're most proud of or answer both. If you're happy to yeah. answer both. Um, Okay, there's probably three bits to that answer, and I know okay. we have to go. So no, that's I'll do okay. them. I'm, I'm I do remember the first joke I ever got on Rove. Um, and to me, having done, like, I'd never done massive comedy gigs. I think I'd done, actually, you were on at one big Amnesty International gig in the sketch group we were in. But I'd never, I hadn't done, like, heaps of massive gigs. And I remember a joke that got on Rove. It was basically what I wrote. They'd edited it to be much better. But the joke was 
some Queensland senator, and it was actually quite true, was saying we have to be teaching kids sex education younger because the internet and mobile phones. And, and so the joke was on the first show of Rove that I ever wrote. It was his comeback show just after his yeah. wife had passed away. And, and the joke got into the news and it was a government MP today said children as young as prep should be taught sex, sex education. So therefore, the government will release a series of children's books entitled Humpty Dumpty Sat on a Cock. <laughs> Now, I put in the original draft, Humpty Dumpty sat on a penis. Yeah. Just because, I, I don't know, maybe it's kids and mm. penises are softer or something. Mm-hmm. And then Jace Marion flipped it to cock. And it is better because it's plosive yeah. and it, yeah, it punches. Yeah, but these, these... Sharp, short, yeah. sharp. Yeah. Like cock, it's a funny sounding word. It's still got all those K sounds. That's yeah. like an old school comedy writer It word. is, yeah. Double K. Yeah, it is. You know? No, it is. It's got that thing. And yeah. so he was right. But I just remember when that came out on the show, like the, it was, and I heard the audience laughing at that stage, like, you know, 1.5 million people yep. watched Rove. I was like, fuck, that many people just heard my joke. Mm. I remember running out the back and ringing mum and I go, mum, I got a joke on the show. And she goes, what was the joke? I'm watching it. And I go, the, hum- <laughs> the Humpty Dumpty joke. And there's this long pause, Catholic mum, and she just goes, oh dear. <laughs> I still, re- it was in the alley behind the old Channel 7 studio, which is still there in South Melbourne. I've driven past it and I'm, fuck, I remember calling mum. So that was the first one. I was very proud of that. Yeah. Just that you go, okay, I've got something on TV. Um, then the, the next thing I was hugely proud of was uh, writing International Student with Ronnie mm-hmm. Ching because I had always wanted to write narrative comedy. It had been my dream. And then we finally got to do it. And that was a weird one because we wrote the pilot the way it was funded and that, screened first and then we had to do the other six episodes after that really quickly but i remember that being on tv and it was just you know for it had been ronnie just telling all his stories about being an international student i remember he took me at art we were walking around the city and he'd walk me around chinatown he'd point out like who all the characters were and then he walked me to the basketball courts behind rmit and he said to me uh he goes he goes, this show cannot be fucking left-wing people feeling sorry for Asian people. And he goes, we feel sorry for you. <laughs> and then he goes, what was his line? He said, if you knew, well, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, if you knew what Asian people, if you knew what international students thought about you, it will blow your fucking left-wing mind. <laughs> and that was kind of the lens, but he actually, yeah. I realised in I, that... I, I'm sure he would not mind <laughs> saying that. I, Ronnie's not the sort of person who's backward and coming forward about those perspectives. No. But it's also what's so compelling about Ronnie well, that's is the... that he flips that narrative on its head and yeah. he's honest about it. He, I remember saying to him, this is what was fascinating about writing with him, I remember saying to him, you should do a bit, because I met him working on one of his shows in 2014 maybe, and I said, you should do a bit about these racist things on trains because there was like, you know, there was a series of people filming. Yep. And I said, someone should talk about it. And I said, I feel like you could say something about it. He's like, okay, okay. And so he went away and he comes back. And from my perspective, white bleeding heart lefty, I expect him to get up. And I went to the trial the next day. I expect him to get up there and go, oh, you know, getting on trains, it's so scary. And what if someone says something? And he stands up on stage. He goes, man, I get on fucking trains, flip my phone on and go, who wants to go viral, motherfuckers? <laughs> And I was just killing myself laughing, but he flipped the whole dynamic. Right. And I, I was like, I didn't even think of that. And so what I realized is 
we wrote a few versions of the pilot and the first version, I was completely wrong. I wrote it as like, what do Australians think about Asians coming here? And then when Ronnie kept saying this, we feel sorry for you. We don't need your help. All we want is A's. We don't want fucking, we're not allowed to, we don't drink. We don't want right. drugs. We don't, we don't want to party. We go back to our country. We work for our parents and we make a shitload of money. And he flipped it. And I realized, oh fuck, this is like Australian culture viewed through Ronnie and international students and as soon as he said that I was just like oh it freed everything every dumb cliche about like Aussie guys suddenly being viewed through Ronnie or any of the other characters and they're proper like high status characters and I just so that was a huge thing for me that and to see that stuff that you wrote in a room together and it's suddenly on you know it's suddenly like on the screen that was a massive like half an hour it's a story that also he's he's about ronnie's about a year away from being the biggest fucking comedian on the planet so it's going to be nice to have been an integral part of yes well it's good because we have that and it keeps selling and i keep getting a check sent from random i did you get this random if you've written a narrative the way the royalties work you get it every six months in this country Mm -hmm. and usually it's okay like it's a bit of money here and there but then one month it came through and it was just like 73 dollars each and i was like it's weird because they're usually in like two-year deals so yeah. you might have like one but so this and i you can look at the spreadsheet yeah. i was like that's it i'm looking at the spreadsheet yeah, where does this 73 yeah. bucks where's this 73 dollars and i look at it and the one place we sold it and so we obviously split yeah. the money was to a ferry company called it's called sea movies okay and they sell movies to ferries that go between yeah. wales and they ireland play on the ferry they play on the ferry and i was like 73 plus 73 is 146 bucks. I reckon this ferry's getting it cheap. Mm. Like, so, well, it's international waters. <laughs> well, that, yeah, every, you can do whatever you want out there. So that's my. That's You're lucky my, they cut you a check. That's my demographic. Yeah, I'm lucky it's not just somebody burning it and playing it on the thing. So that was a huge run. And then the one, but there was always a thing that I felt like, and it's, it's not a criticism, it was a privilege to write with Ronnie about like, his experience, but I always felt like I hadn't kind of written the thing that was me. You know, I keep talking to you about right. capturing everyone's whole mess. Yeah. And so the big one for me was the uh, hip hop, uh, Christian hip hop podcast that we wrote. It's a good way to draw it full circle because I mentioned Catholic guilt. So full circle, yeah. I brought you back to, yeah. and this is great because, yeah. and by the way, mm. it's been so nice to have this chat because yeah. we literally basically have talked about nothing that we, yeah, I, think, I, I think we mentioned Ronnie last time. That yeah. was about it. Yeah. Still haven't got to Wu-Tang. Which I think <laughs> we'll, get, is, we'll get there one day. Yeah, we'll yeah. get there another yeah. time. Uh, but uh, tell us, yes, about uh, this project, which in particular was very close to your heart in so mm. many ways. And we mentioned hip hop. Hip hop mm. is yeah. part of this story. Yeah. Religion is part yeah. of this story. Yeah. For those who don't know mm. the story, tell people about the show, yeah. what it was, where it came from. Yep. So it's called, it, 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 it exists. It's been existing for about nine months. It was a podcast for the ABC uh, that is a kind of mockumentary on a Christian hip hop uh, group that blow up called Crossbread and as in the crucifix and the bread and uh it's the two stars of my friend uh chris ryan who i went to school with and megan washington the pop singer composer performer a voice of calypso in bluey um they were the two so we all wrote it together and they were the two performers and then the narrator of it was aaron chen who played a young um christian kind of social media whiz who was piecing the history the untold history of this christian hip-hop band together so 
it was one of those really weird things. I was in Sydney. I didn't have anything to do for the day. And my friend Chris that I'd gone to school with was doing a play in Sydney. And he said, and I said, do you want to meet up for a coffee? And I said to him, the ABC has this podcast thing due tomorrow. It's to do a scripted narrative podcast. And I said, and Chris is a, he started as an opera singer. And I said to him, I've kind of had this idea. I love weird little worlds, like international students or like kind of insular worlds. And I said, what if there was, I just got this idea that there's a brother and sister, like um, two singers that are maybe opera singers, but something happens and they blow up and they get thrust into kind of stardom and what would happen. And I said, would you want to do it? Like, and I could just write the thing tonight. And he goes, I would love to do it, but I would prefer it was an opera because I worked as an opera singer for 20 years and nobody gives a fuck about opera. <laughs> and then he said, it's usually the way to clear people away from you at a party is to say, oh, I do opera. And so he said, but I like the idea about a Christian. Uh, no, that's right. So then we started to talk. And I said, what would it be? And we just started talking about school and something came up because we'd both been in a Christian youth group at school. And he said, what if it was two Christian people who were just like, who play those kind of Christian gigs and then they blow up? And we just started to laugh because we used to go, they'd send you to festivals that were out in like tents in like Canberra or like wherever. And it was always in some weird place and you'd see all these Christian kids and it was like you'd gone to another world. And so we just started to make, we we're just laughing and kind of joking about it. And, um, then basically we put this thing and it was quite vague it just said two christian pop two christian singers blow up and become the biggest thing and it was written better than that but it was but we got it so we got this grant from abc and then chris and i went to go to planet shakers which is in yep. south melbourne the big christian. so i walked past planet shakers so yeah. uh oh, south melbourne yeah because right. you were working there so, yeah yeah but i even so where i am at the yeah. moment yeah uh I walk to my show every yeah. night at the Arts Centre yeah. and I walk past, yeah. like I walk down City Road, past yeah. the Planet Shakers and as I'm walking home from my show, they yeah. must have a, a nighttime service yeah. or whatever yeah. that literally spills out almost exactly as I'm walking back yeah. every night. Well, it's so we went and I... Chris just kind of played a character, like earnest young guy trying to find... Like we didn't go take the piss out of it. We no. just went to see it because we imagined it had changed a lot in 20 years since we'd been at school and we went... And it was full. It was massively multicultural, like Asian. Oh, massively. Yeah. Indian, like that's like, the biggest thing yeah. just from seeing the audiences walk yeah. out. You're like, this is a massively multicultural yeah. organization. And that, that was what really struck us. But then also what struck us is having played in weird comedy venues all my life, it was full in this mm -hmm. giant warehouse with cameras on cranes and like yeah. giant screens and like floor managers. And the first song they did was a kind of like these Christian breakdancers came out and it was actually really good. Like it was choreographed yeah. really good. And as we left, Chris said to me, he goes, I think it's got to be hip hop. And then he goes, I don't know anything about hip hop. And he goes, but you kind of wanted to be a rapper when you were growing up. Maybe we could do that. And then everything flashed through my mind. As you know, we're talking about all the mistakes young comics make. I don't know if you ever did it, but we all did very poor white guys rapping on stage <laughs> at some stage when we're 20. Because we didn't, we just wanted to rap. It was less about the comedy and more about the rap. I ask, uh, one of the questions I ask yeah. regularly on this show is uh, if you could have any special ability yeah. immediately, yeah. you know, what would it be? Yeah. And often people ask me in return. Yeah. And the one that I yeah. have settled on at the moment yeah. is the 
capacity to just be an awesome rapper yeah, yeah. i would love to <laughs> yeah, be yeah. an awesome rapper totally yeah. and it's it because that's we grew up as it was starting like biggie and tupac and wu-tang like the energy of it was just wild and so that's what chris said and i sort of left thinking maybe that's it maybe that's it and we started to write it and then we realized we're gonna need a really 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 good like to play Chris's sister, someone that can sing. This can't be joke music. It's no. got to be believable because it's actually really good when you go to it. And we've got to believe that it can blow up. And Chris said, I did a Fringe show about five years ago with Megan Washington. She just played the music, but she, she was meant to just play the music, but she was so good and funny that she ended up making her way into the show. And I said, oh, we should meet her. So we met her when she came down to Melbourne and she said, I used to be in a Christian youth group in Brisbane and because I could sing, they would send me to like evangelize to other people and to recruit and i was like oh my god this is this this is meant to be and we just started talking about all our experiences and uh it 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 you you just know like i mean you know if you're on a good joke or a good moment or you're improvising a show you know if you're on a good one you just there's this kind of oh nine times out of ten you know sometimes you don't but there's this just energy and I just remember driving away thinking, fuck, this is it. This is the thing. And we just sat in a room for the next however long and just kept writing about this like Christian youth group. And the whole thing was we never wanted to make an easy joke because the second you do that, it's kind of – you can do that, but it's like it ends as a story. Like you kind of – the second you take the easy punch with that, it doesn't last. Like you have to try and humanize them. Like, you know, when you watch – Spinal Tap, like you believe these guys are in this insane band, and that, but they care for each other, and so we just kept kind of doing it, and uh, we made it. And I remember we finished the music. Me, we all wrote the lyrics together, but Megan did all the like beds for the music. She wrote the loops and the layered. She kind of layered in the chords and that uh, and the beats and that kind of thing. And then she said, "I feel like the music needs one extra level at the end." And it was during the pandemic that we were finishing it. And she said I could send it to my producer in South Australia. And we had like three days to get it in. And I said to her, please, like, if this is wrong, we have to go back to what you've got. Because, A, we don't have any more money or time. And it goes up on, like, Monday morning. And she goes, no, he's and his name's Mario Spate. Never met him. Didn't even talk. I just wrote a list of things going, I reckon the song sounds like X. And I'd put, like, a link to, like... I don't know, EPMD or like, um, who does shook ones? It's gone out of my mind. You know, yeah, ain't a crook, son. You're just a shook one. <laughs> that, that, that was big in my mind. So I just right. wrote a list of like what it might sound like. And um, yeah, and so anyway, it came back on the Friday and I just got a link on my phone. It was from Megan and it was to like seven of the songs dropboxed. And I was just like, fuck. And I said to my partner, I know you're working. Um, can I just go for a walk for an hour? And I put it in and as soon as the first one started and he fully like, it was proper hip hop drums. It was proper like 808 beats. There was scratching in it. And I started to just laugh out loud. And then on the big Christian song that blows them up, which is called Just Jesus, about this guy runs into Jesus in a food court, Her vo- Megan's voice kicks in and he'd vocoded it like Kanye yeah. in Twisted Dark Fantasy. And I swear to God, I'd been locked in the house for a long time, but I burst into tears in Preston. Like, so I was laughing but crying at the same time. And there was this old Greek guy, like two streets from us, like just watering his driveway in Preston. And he sees me like laughing, crying. And he does, he's like, oh, are you okay? And I've got headphones on. And he's, uh, and then I saw him kind of give me this odd look. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm okay. I'm just listening to something. And then I kind of walked off. And then I got home and I realized Michael Chamberlain and Terry Siakas had given me for my 40th birthday a hoodie with a giant picture of me 
on it of my face like from like 10 years ago or like when I was young like we all knew each other and I realized this guy has just seen a guy in the street laughing and then crying wearing a jumper with himself on it well I mean if you'd explain to him you're also listening to something that you'd written yourself like what's so funny this thing that I wrote anyway I'm a real big fan of me I never, I haven't, I barely go down that street. I walk the dog at night down that street. I couldn't believe it. And so anyway, but I just, it was that moment. I'm sure you've had it with things that you've done where I just went, I really believed it. Look, the reviews were good, so I didn't have to put up with a bad one. But I did have this belief I don't care what happens with this because this is, you know, we talked about those great shows being the whole mess of you. I was like, this is everything me. It's this idiot 15-year-old in Bulleen that wanted to be a rapper. It's this kid that went to a Christian youth group. It set a lot of it in Forest Hill Chase and, like, it's a kid that hung out in food courts. And it's not just me. It's Chris and Megan. Like, it was all our youth kind of tied into this. And that's, I just thought, fuck, I finally wrote, with all of them like we finally wrote like something that felt like me like it was such a good thing though isn't it because like i think often we think of autobiographical stuff as having to be literally autobiographical Yeah, yeah whereas i think that sometimes you have much more freedom if you can just find something that is your world Uh, but wasn't your world and you need to have some I'm sure you've had bits that were too raw and you need to have just that little bit of distance I even feel like with Waliga when I did it in 2018 it was only six months after the incident happened Mm. and I was still living it a bit from night to night whereas doing it now three years later yeah it's a show yeah and I can enjoy it as a show and I can tell it as a story in a way that I probably wasn't doing when I was too no, close to it and you've got to to see the picture you've got to kind of get out of the Step frame back a little and yeah. sometimes you see somebody do an autobiographical show and they're not ready they're still in it yeah. and there's not a perspective on it and it's interesting it's funny you say that because Greg Larson's show in the festival he chose to do a story from his life in 2004 mm. but he is playing a character because he wanted the freedom because life is messy like it's not cause and effect like a script mm-hmm. he wanted the freedom to just bend a couple of things to so that he didn't feel like he was misrepresenting himself or his family yeah. or and it made it it just freed him up now he, he then came up with this very interesting device where he then snaps into himself and comments and goes what's right about this uh scene and what's wrong about this scene is and he found a very interesting device that then freed him up even more but yeah i think you need that distance from it. when you're still in it and that was the thing when i talk about trying to write grief I was so deep in it, I couldn't see past it. And I'm sure most of the things I wrote during that time about it were terrible, but you kind of have to, at some stage you'll write it and it's moved or you've moved or something and you have a different perspective on it. Like I imagine the Will Eagle thing, you were still maybe a bit angry or like was some what was clouding you when you were on stage? I mean, I, there was a lot of emotions. Yeah. So I was definitely still angry. I hadn't quite reconciled you know Mm. blame and you know Mm. my part in that blame and Mm -hmm. being in control of all those things now i have a much clearer perspective on that and it's enabled me also to see links that were probably already there you know things that i was already kind of saying but actually recognize why i was saying those because your subconscious is trying to squeeze things up as you're writing and you don't realize it and interestingly it's funny all the shows that waited a year and had that time Mm. It, it gave them another way to step back from it and see what was 
like bubbling up. Sometimes it bubbles up and it makes it to the surface as you're doing the show and you're fine. But sometimes it doesn't. And the audience kind of sits there going, I feel like there's something missing. Like, a, what didn't you tell us? Like, and it's because it's not that you've withheld. You just don't know yet because you haven't actually realized something. And I think the time and structure of how we put together shows in yeah. Australia, we really do have like this yearly sort of yeah. It doesn't mean yeah. that everybody's doing a show every year, yeah. but... It's quite common for people to do a show every year. And if you want to really be touring, Mm. you kind of have to do a new show every year because we're not a big enough country to, you know, for you to be able to tour the same show for a couple of years. And so what happens is that I think we never quite have the luxury that people have in other countries of getting the show really right, having some time away from it to think Mm. about it again. Ideally, what needs to happen is... Mm. Just before the comedy festival next year, mm. they need to cancel it again. <laughs> because there's no point. There's no point saying we're going to do it every two years. Yeah. Because yeah. as comedians, yeah. we'll just wait yeah, until next true. year to write yeah. our new show. Yeah. We've got it. They've got to get us to. Like, You've got to trick people. It, yeah. Get yeah. it all ready. Yeah. And then say, actually, we're doing the festival in six months. It's true. So go away. <laughs> it's true. And because people have come back with a yeah. love for it, like yeah. you see people on stage. They're just Nikki Britton is sharing with Greg, yep. and on her first night, she just you know she she's now been nominated for the most outstanding show. But on her first night, she just she said she goes, I haven't trialed this stuff. This mm. is so weird. But at the same time, she was going, fuck, it's good to be back on stage. Like you could see this joy in her, and I think you can forget why you. I mean, you and I have both done mouse wheel jobs like commercial radio. Once you're in it, you can very quickly forget why you love it or why you forget why you don't, why you like sitting in a room joking with people or if you do it too much, you can totally lose perspective on it. So, yeah, we need some mysterious pandemic that comes every two years. Just every two years. Yeah, yeah. With a little check. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, the, yeah. I mean, obviously the worst bit is the, yeah. you know, not being able to earn your living. And yeah. that's, that's part of the yeah. dynamic of it. But yeah. I do think that people coming to this festival with something they've thought about for a while or yeah. maybe something they haven't thought about too much yeah, maybe they've totally. come in a bit fresher and looser yeah. yeah it's been good i think in the long run it will mm. be very good for oh, what has happened totally. so yeah uh we talk about death um we went through this last time mm. but um it's standard for the podcast mm. so i need to mm. you know ask the standard questions at yeah. the end or people will get pissed off yeah um what do you think happens when we die well, the ex-catholic thing i'm still very my kid asks me all the time or both my kids um one of them one of them says do i turn invisible when i die i said yeah you kind of do um we live very close to the preston coburg graveyard as well so they're kind of interested in that um i'm really struggling to know what to tell them because i i think something happens i don't think it just ends i don't i think that there's I mean, you know, we've talked all through this about energy and how that energy is transferred. And I think about those people in my life that died. Like it was my dad, then my aunt, who was inspiration to me, and then this girlfriend and Hannah, her name was. And I remember saying to my writing teacher at the time, I don't know what to do with this now. Like just too much has happened in the year and it's just, it's too heartbreaking. And she said, look, I don't, all, the only advice I can give you is to take these people's energy and especially this girl Hannah because it had just happened take the energy what you loved about her her spirit and carry that on and I kind of I reckon that's about as close as I get is there is a spirit that kind of carries on I don't know how it carries on whether it goes into someone else or whether it um but there there's a spirit that carries on it doesn't it doesn't go away it's I'm sure whatever we all think when we get there 
it'll uh, it'll be very different. Like we'll all be proved wrong. I remember this kid. Fuck. Remember last time we talked about this is such an odd thing to bring up right at the end, but a funny Lebanese kid in my class that like he just cracked me up every class. But I remember the teacher in this religion class talking about what happens when you like what we believe as Christians and. She goes, and then the teacher goes, look, you know, a lot of people think the devil is just a metaphor and hell and this type of thing. And then Daniel goes, no, no, I know what it is, sir. And he goes, when you die, like you get a tour. And he goes, they take you up to heaven. They go, this is it. There's all these angels up there. They're sitting on like clouds, playing harp music. It's kind of chill. And he goes, and then you get down the bottom and he goes, you go down to hell and it's just like a rave and like the devil's there and he's just got decks in front of him and he's just mixing up some mad shit. (laughs) And the teacher just goes, Katamani. Get out. <laughs> but it really stuck in my mind. <laughs> it really stuck. Oh. It's, it's, and it, it's he, just he, mixing up some mad shit. You know? <laughs> it really stuck in my Like we all laughed and yeah. the teacher knew the class was gone. There's going to be no religious like discussion of that. But I, I, I think what, okay. So I think what happens when we die is some mad shit that none of us, <laughs> Are gonna it's it's gonna mix it up for us. We don't we don't know, but it's it's it. There's something. It doesn't just the lights just don't go out. But that's that's just me. That's I, I have think. a question that I've started asking yeah. since uh, yeah. we last spoke, which yeah. wasn't in the previous podcast. But uh, I have a little. It's as close as I get to an inspirational quote. Mm. It sits on my desk, and it's just a little reminder to me. Mm. It says, um, "What would you attempt if you knew you could not fail?" So it's meant to remind myself to not, yeah, know, like not think about the end result when I'm like, yeah, deciding what it is that I'm going to work on. That I should yeah, just yeah. work on things as if they will be successful, rather than try to make something successful. What would you attempt to do if you were guaranteed success? Oh, I really don't want to say be a rapper because I mean <laughs> you're allowed to say be a rapper. That is totally fine. I, uh, just for a little bit, I would be a rapper. What sort of rapper would you like to be? Because this is where it gets interesting. So you, you have an ideal scenario yeah. where you can be yeah. a rapper of any description. Yeah. Like if you had to base your kind of like rap yeah, style yeah. on yeah. any rapper who's going around yeah. or has gone around in history, yeah. what what are we looking at? Ooh. Are you part of like a posse? Like is part of the appeal that like, you know, it's going to be you and a couple of your mates Beastie Boys style or some <laughs> sort of like Wu-Tang style yeah. collective where okay, you're just well, look, it was part in, of a large dysfunctional relationship yeah. with it a group of It was inevitable that it would end with Wu-Tang because yeah. we kind of mentioned it last time and yeah. we've joked about someone who was going on a podcast with you to talk about Wu-Tang me to get kind of i always really liked yeah it would be it would off the top of my head now it would be the rizza Mm -hmm. in wu-tang oh yeah he's by far not the best rapper in that group he may not even be in the best five rappers Mm -hmm. in that group but he had this depending on (laughs) depending on when you catch them (laughs) absolutely yeah (laughs) depending on which gig um what state of mind they're all in who's talking to who uh who's in legal battles who's been able to get into the country yeah that's right yeah um so but i always really liked that he he was able to take all these different voices Mm. and he could somehow like that album 36 chambers to the first time I listened to it, this kid at school played it to me, and I just didn't get it. Like, because it was just there was too much going on yeah. for me to grasp. Like, I, 
I remember, uh, did it open with Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with or bring the ruckus? It opens with one of those. Mm. And it was it was literally too much. There's all these voices going in and out. But I do remember hearing the uh, uh, the Inspector Deck verse, you know, smoking the mic, like smoking Joe Fraser, the Hellraiser, raising hell with the flavor, terrorizing jams like truth in Pakistan, stringing through your hood like a neighborhood Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Yeah, that's right. And I just, something about that was just electric. Yeah. And I love that he was able to take these voices and I think there's a thing and meld them into something greater than the sum of its parts. And I think there's a thing when you write and you write for people initially, writers can be assholes and go, no, no, it's like this. But if you work with someone, it's like this deal that you're writing for their voice. It has to come out of their mouth. You're helping them create something. So they have to be, you can nudge them to it, but they have to be happy with it. You can't force them to say something and you have to take those voices and use them in a way that makes something greater than the sum of everyone. I'm not saying I do that all the time and I have failed at it at some things, but at my best, I'd like to think that I can drag kind of disparate, uh, occasionally dysfunctional people, but very creative people together to make, something a bit better or something bigger than the sum of its parts. It's a good answer. Thank I like you. That. That's yeah. a very good answer. I'm glad I hadn't, I haven't listened to it in recent times. So I didn't know you were going to answer that question. So I'm glad it was off the top of my head and not a pre-planned one. No, I like yeah. that. That's good. I like the idea of like, also, I just think what sort of like, I don't know why this is, mm. but I have this kind of weird fantasy mm. that like, I am just an amazing, like, you know, like a, <laughs> Eight mile B rabbit style, yeah, you yeah. know, kind of battle rapper. Like yeah, just right. Like this incredible, yeah. Yeah. but that I don't do it professionally. Yeah, like yeah. I'm the world's greatest battle rapper, ah. but just occasionally. Yeah, just come out to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I um, don't know why. I don't know why, but that's my ideal that I'm the world's greatest rapper, but I only use it recreationally. That's amazing. Because I love that eight yeah. mile scene. Mm. I went to the movie, three, I watched the movie at the drive in. Like I, I went to it like three times. And, but. I couldn't do that. The, again, Catholic guilt, it would kick in. I'd see that I'd said something slightly mean to the other guy and right. then I'd want to apologize. <laughs> I couldn't do it. And that thing in the moment, like I like to have a think yeah. about what I want to say. And uh, yeah, I couldn't. That's, that, that is a great answer. I think it, it's, it says something about both our personalities because I, could, I couldn't, I could not do that. Like I... Even thinking about it makes me quite angry. Well, it's funny, isn't yeah. it? Because like yeah. I once did one of those comedy roasts in Montreal yeah. Yeah. and hated it. Yeah, right. Because I don't enjoy the experience of actually going out there and being mean to somebody. Just slamming dudes. But in yeah. rap, I think because it's part of the <laughs> yeah, culture. Yeah, right. It's yeah. just like, you know, anyway. Yeah. Uh, the, the conversation, a longer conversation for another time yeah. because we have to finish yeah. up. But a um, uh, couple more questions before I go. If you could have any mm. skill in the world, you've got to pick something other than rap now. Okay. You can have any skill in the world. You immediately have it. You don't have to do your 10,000 hours. Okay. You're just very good at this thing. Yeah. What is it that you'd like to be very good at? Love to dance. Oh, I'm terrible. Yeah. What style terrible. of dancing? Just have that thing. My partner's a really good dancer mm-hmm. and the kids have taken after her. There is. I have read that, unfortunately, often kids will copy the physicality and the kind of biomechanics of the same gendered parent oh, yeah. if they're looking at them both, which mm-hmm. is a bummer because Juanita's very athletic and very good mover and I'm not. I'm awkward. I'm mm. stiff in weird areas. I'm self-conscious to dance. But I see the kids like just lose themselves in music and how they move to it and i kind of just envy it like they're so lost in it and when it is like i see her she'll go and she like she loves dancing at a party 
and I just can't even fathom that somebody loves that. And so, I'd lo- I, not professionally. I just love the ability that you just just suddenly this fucking gun dancer and. Uh, that it's like this maybe it's my version of your battle rap thing i'm not doing it professionally no, not when, my gig i'm yeah. still just doing my normal day <laughs> when gig. i wheel it out no, no, no. do you know declan could dance that well <laughs> yeah exactly there's something about that, that I I just always, even in school musicals i was so self-conscious of like yeah. the movement on which is weird because i can stand up and talk to people mm. for hours i can do radio i can do this but something about the physicality of it so yeah it'd be to dance not to be like you know barishnikov or like just to be is that a dancer barishnikov or did i just say a random yeah, russian? i think he's a russian ballet yeah. dancer yeah, okay. barishnikov, right? yeah i think so yeah yeah so again yeah. you haven't gotten to my strength in that either yeah. honest, <laughs> yeah. i could have said any russian name <laughs> yeah so i think yeah i reckon yeah, i reckon so it's, be it's that. either yeah. a ballet dancer or a weapon i'm not sure which but it's definitely <laughs> yeah. one of the two or in a lower tier yeah. like russian table tennis league yeah, or, yeah. yeah it's the blue yeah. <laughs> now I can't even say it. So, uh, final question over time machine. Yeah. I can take you to any point uh, yeah. in the future, any point yeah. in history. Yeah. You can go to your own life. You yeah. can, you know, uh, affect it in some way. You yeah. can observe it in some way. But you don't have to visit yourself. You can mm. just, you know, yeah. if you're curious about the future or the past, you can go there. Where would you like to go? Uh, I would. I, I thought about this on the way in. I, I still reckon it's probably more thematic now than it was last time i still reckon i would just go back and uh briefly visit my dad not for any other reason well for lots of different reasons but to kind of go hey you only saw us do these kind of uh dubious comedy shows at uni he didn't even get to see gorilla comedioka wonderfully so firstly you'd sit him down with the vhs type of of me singing Gorilla Comedioca. Beautiful Bay about yeah. dolphins going through... Super- you're like, yeah. it is right. It is actually, you're right. It is a terrible bay and this is a good comic juxtaposition. <laughs> so, but I would... It would be more yeah. to go... Because I think he worried. I think he, yeah. he'd been a journalist and he left journalism for a bit and then tried to come back to it. But it was as the whole industry was changing and yeah. moving online. And and I think he, he, he was very happy for us to follow our dreams. But it was more, he was just like, fuck, don't get caught like without a job. Like what mm-hmm. skill have you got? And as you know, or anyone that does this, this is a very hard life to quantify. Like you might have your best gig in front of 30 people and you can't ever explain that to a parent or a friend. You might be like all my relatives when I got onto Triple M were like, um, oh my God, you've made it, you've made it. And I got really agitated because to me that wasn't, it's great to have a job that you Mm. were paid. But I was like, no, I made it when I did the comedy festival or I made it at, you know, some, I didn't make, and also you don't ever make it. You just do do another thing and then you do a different thing. And so that I, but I, I would just go, hey, here's all the things that I did. And here's kind of like, yeah, here's, this is I was starting this exactly as you kind of as you passed away and this is because I do remember telling him about a week beforehand hey uh we're going to do this show for the comedy festival and he's really excited and so I think that I just go this is where this is all the look there's a really weird random bunch of shit this takes me down a lot of different places and but this is kind of what this I've is done what this yeah. has been, been yeah. my life yeah pretty much yeah yeah, I think that's all uh, they would want to hear. You know, I, I do think about that as well when yeah. I think about what you've said. I'm very lucky that my parents got to see me mm. 
I, don't, I mean, regardless of whether they think I'm good at it or not, be yeah. successful at it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like, get yeah. to that point in your life where, because I remember the first few years. Yeah. You know. And they they come and they see them. Yeah. And yeah. I feel for them the worst. Yeah. Particularly in the early days when people, like, the first time people start to be mean to you or something. Like, yeah. you know, you know, when I was doing Glasshouse or whatever, yeah, and yeah. suddenly people are publicly being mean yeah. about something you've said or done. I, yeah. it, I, I can kind of learn how to handle that shit. Yeah. But, your parents are always going to be your parents. Yeah, so. totally. And that thing where you still hope they're okay and you drop them off. Like our kids play two doors up the road and I'll still watch out the door when the four-year-old runs up. And it, I don't think that ever goes away. No. So, yeah, and I imagine when someone goes into the public eye, like that would be even more even more difficult. Yeah. Oh, man, this has been great. I mean, yeah. we really genuinely just talked about two hours of different stuff. It was totally, it was totally, yeah. I, I kind yep. of figured that would happen. So yeah. I just, I, but, thought it, I thought it would be okay. But it was great. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for doing this. People should definitely check out Crossbred. It's an mm. excellent series and uh, still available. Ronnie Chang, international mm. student, available all around the world, including ferries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're ever on a ferry from Wales to Ireland, <laughs> watch it because I've got to get that $73 check in another six months. Well, mate, this has been a great pleasure thank you excellent